everyone. Robbie here and welcome to episode 51 of the Coach's Journey podcast with Matt Thielman. So Matt Thielman admits that for many years he wholeheartedly dismissed the coaching industry. He also says he denied an important part of himself. Now, as the author of This Is Coaching and a renowned transformational coach, visionary and featured TEDx speaker on the topic of mindful leadership, Matt is adept at identifying when people and organizations have shut off vital parts of themselves. In this episode, Matt talks frankly about the barriers he had to overcome to allow the hidden parts of himself to be seen, and how experiences like the Samurai Coaching Dojo, uh, created by f- uh, former guest uh, Toku McCree, transformed Matt's sense of belonging, as well as the spaces he creates for his coaching clients. He shares what becoming CEO of the founders coaching organisation Pylea taught him about growing sustainably and building without burnout. Through his own struggles, he learned that. And he outlines his goals for every business founder in the world to have a coach, for every coach in the world to be world-class, and for every human in the world to have the skills of a coach. In this episode, we also talk about broken leadership models and how we can fix them, how to handle difficult feedback and criticism, harnessing deliberate practice to train and improve as a coach, how we fall into the trap of outsourcing our decision-making capability um, and the process of pitching, publishing and marketing a book on coaching, um, which, is, which, is, which is a lot of fun. Uh, Matt shares details about his new pilot group program called Mastering the Coaching Game, which will take the principles of his book. This is Coaching Deeper and support coaches in, implying, uh, in, in applying those principles to their life and their work. Um, it, it, one of the first things Matt and I talk about is uh, we we didn't qu- is, is how we nearly overlapped in Rich Litvin's prosperous coach community, but didn't quite. Um, and if that community, one of the things that really showed me being on Rich's group programs, going to his intensives, was how powerful it can be to be in a group surrounded by other coaches. And a long way down the line, with some ripple effects and some changes and some iterations, that's where the Coach's Journey community came from. Um, if you don't know about the Coach's Journey community, it's a, it's a flexible, affordable group coaching program where you can pay as little as £10 a month, so it's a lot cheaper than Rich's program, <laughs> um, or up to £100 a month. And depending on how much you pay, you get different amounts of uh, group calls, um, you get some one-on-one time with me, um, and, and the idea is that it, that it creates a space for you to think and be coached on. Um, growing a thriving coaching business and thriving as a person while you do it. Um, and uh, recently I've been collecting some testimonials for that. And so I just wanted to share it to give you a bit more of a sense of what the Coach's Journey community is like. This is what one of the community members, Alex Swallow, um, wrote to me. It's difficult to put into words how much I've got from the Coach's Journey community. I think the biggest compliment I can play is that by temperament, I've never considered myself a groups person, but the community is one of the first times I've ever thought groups could be a space I really enjoy. I've loved seeing the growth in community members and experiencing my own growth too. As a coach, I've learned so much from my business. As a human being, I've learned so much on my self-improvement journey. Robbie is both a masterful coach and a top bloke. It's getting a bit weird to read out a testimonial now I've said that. Um, and he's been fundamental to my development in so many ways. Big thanks to him and to every member of the co- of the community, past and present. And that, again, is from Alex Swallow, influence expert and coach. Um, and a big thanks to Alex um, and to other community members and supporters, particularly Joey Owen, um, David Norris and Alex Witten for their ongoing support. So you get a sense from Alex's words there, I hope, just how powerful the um, the Coach's Journey community can be. And I hope you might consider joining us. You can find out more about that at thecoachesjourney.com slash community. Um, but before that, um, I really hope you enjoy... Um, Enjoy listening to my conversation with Matt. Um, I love how we open talking about why Matt can 
dismissed coaching completely, just like many of us had before we really got it to understand what it is. I love that we get to touch into into the Prosperous Coach community right from the start, into Matt's um, spiritual side right from the start. And, and you'll have to listen to nearly the end of our conversation for this beautiful bit from Matt's book about Google Maps, which um, sounds small, but when I explained it to Miles Downey, who, who regular listeners will have will have heard and enjoyed the episode with, um, I explained this as, as one of the ways M- Matt talks about why coaching needs to be non-directive. And it's just, and, and Miles' word, he just paused and then he said, oh, that's brilliant. And it is, it is absolutely brilliant. So listen out for that or buy Matt's book to find that out. Um, and yeah, I hope you enjoy this conversation with me and the fantastic Matt Thielman. Matt Thielman, welcome to the Coach's Journey podcast. Thanks, Robbie. You got it right. I did. We were just doing a na- name jokes, talking about origins of your surname. Is it the same? Is it a German name? Not what I thought, a Belgian name, like the like the Premier League footballer with a similar name. I'm very aware as somebody who, weirdly, Robbie gets mis- m- messed around with by people unconsciously more than Swale. I get like Robin, uh, Robbie wow. spelled in weird ways. Um, I'm always quite aware that it's nice to be able to say someone's actual name. Although another guest I recorded with recently has a fantastic Catalan name, which I gotta say, I did not, uh, I did not nail. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, Matt, so lovely to have you here and to get to speak to you and, um, people who have been long time listeners to the show will remember uh, one of one of my favorite episodes with Toku McCree who is in in some ways uh, is is partly why we're here we were just saying yeah. partly it's because of the work sure. you do and i was you know your your machine had already made me aware of you and and that kind of thing but Toku made this beautiful introduction where he said to me matt is integrity possibility depth love what an introduction that is hey thanks toku yeah <laughs> Yeah, so people who like that episode uh, can now know that Tokyo knows something about what we might get in this conversation. And I didn't. I this is kind of this is chat that could have been chat before we switched on, actually, um, yeah. but it's not now because we've already started. Like I was reading the acknowledgments of your book, and you name some of the people that you know, particularly from the Prosperous Coach community. And I was wondering mm-hmm. if we were like we might have been in. That you know th- those kind of communities they go through life cycles right. Some people are around a long time, but a, a few of those names were familiar. Aaron Caulfield, Mike Harris. Like I was at some yeah. of those things. I wonder if we were at. Uh, did you go to any prosperous coach intensives? I, this is actually a hilarious story. Um, I was at April 2019 in San Diego. Okay, yeah, I wasn't there. Yeah, I did London 20. What was that? 2017, and then Santa uh-huh. Monica 2018. I think. Okay. So you were a little bit, cause I, I never got to meet some of the folks I mentioned. I never met them in person through Rich's community. I just met right. them online. Like they were all Toku, Adam, Adam Bay, some of those folks. Um, but this is the, what's the funny story is I, so I'm in a coach community called Pylea. I was CEO of that organization for, for about a year. Um, and one of the coaches in there who I've known for a year now, Joe Mar Gomez, he's a great guy. Uh, two weeks ago, he texted me. And he says, where were you on this day in April of 2019? And I was like, I don't know, probably at home in Michigan. He was like, wrong. You're in San Diego. And he sends me a picture of someone who was there at the event. He was like, we were in the same small group and neither of us remember each other. 
So well, two, like, wait, like, you and this person were there. Joe, Joe, the yeah. He, wow. Yeah, he was like he remembered the other person who was in the picture with me. Yeah. So he and I were in a small group of ten. Yeah. completely forgot seeing each other. And once he said, I was like, oh yeah, I remember there was a guy who had really good shoes who dressed well from LA. <laughs> and I was like, that was you. <laughs> yeah, you could like, yeah, I can see you, you, for people who are listening, you're gesturing to like a place in the circle. And I can really imagine that, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. he was sat over there, you know, it's like, you could probably like, I can, from some of those events, they're really memorable, right? They're very evocative. So yeah. I can kind of remember sitting in the foyer of the hotel in Santa Monica that we were in with the small group that I was in that day. I not, I couldn't name everybody that was in that group, but I could tell you some of them and I can see yeah. like the place and where, yeah. you know, um, Daniel, who sadly died since then, and and Louise, and I can kind of see them, you know, Simon, I remember where he was. It's like, it's, they're nice. Like those places are really memorable. Did he, I was suddenly, I thought that story was going to be, maybe it was that he got, because it's just, it's, we're recording not that long after April, the, whatever it was, that he got like a Google photos or something like, you know, on this day, six, you know, I think four Facebook. years ago. And then it's like, wait, who's, it's this guy, you know, yeah, on Facebook. That was nice. exactly, it was a Facebook one. So he, he was like, today I, I learned that Matt and I were, were here together. Um, so that, that was a, that was a fun time. Actually at that event was another guest you've had, Chris Joseph. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, he's yeah. a great guy. Great guy. Really yeah. good guy. Yeah. 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 People should. That was a lovely conversation that Chris and I had, actually. We connected, I don't even remember why, really. We didn't meet through Rich's community. We connected somehow. We'd maybe seen each other in the online bits, and we connected somehow, and then he came on, and it was a, I really loved that conversation. I felt like we really, we really touched into his story in, mm -hmm. in a really beautiful way, and he, yeah, he has a way about him. So that's, yeah, I, I love that one. People can check that one out, too. Um, this is a fun way for us to kind of, I guess I did it, didn't I, by naming Toku as the kind of some of the catalysts for this conversation. It's a fun way for people yeah. to get a bit of a sense of part of your journey as a coach. And you've mentioned, how do I say it? Pilea? Is that what you just, is that how you said it? Or Pilea. Pilea. Yeah, it's, it's named after a plant. Yeah. Which unfortunately I, I don't have around me to show you. Yeah. <laughs> people can Google that. Uh, well, we can put a link to Pilea in the show notes. No, yeah. we're not, we, we don't have to do that, Steve, who, who does the show notes. <laughs> um, but um so like I want to we'll I want to touch in on that. I have lots of curiosity about about Pilea and mm -hmm. I'm sure we'll get to the prosperous coach and and some of those people and their roles in your journey. But the place like and we might go back further than this. The place it would be fun to yeah. go now is this thing coaching. You've Matt's just published a book everybody listening called This is Coaching. Yeah. So this thing coaching that you have a book <laughs> yeah. called This is <laughs> when did you first hear about it? Know about it? In the, in the, I guess, you know, it may have been there was sports coaching and things like that before it. And mm -hmm. maybe that was where it, it came. But in the way that, that you think about it, that, that that book is in some way describing. In the, in a way that I actually took seriously. So, yeah. So, yes to sports coaching. I played baseball for more than 20 years. So when I was five to 27, I played, I played baseball um, and played lots of sports. So I was really familiar with the concept of sports coaching. But this idea of um, transformational coaching, of, of of the type of coaching that we do, uh, I I did not know about seriously until um, we'll say 2015, 2016. At that point, I did, wait. Did I you know a, about it unseriously? Had you got at that point? Yeah, did you have like some I, impression I, of like weird hippie cults or like what well, I don't know what it would be that you impression that you would have had? This is so I I studied psychology and sociology in college. I was quite familiar with the idea of clinical psychology and therapists. I, I had a therapist in my early twenties. 
um, starting uh, and probably when I was a kid, I, I went to therapy when I was, when I was a kid too. Um, but I, so, so I had this idea of you get trained to be a therapist that gives you sort of permission and right to talk about feelings with people and to sit with them. And anyone who calls himself a coach, I had this very vague idea I, uh, of it being pseudoscientific kind of BS. I, it's, it's such an irony that for 20 something years of my life, I denied a massive part of me, which is this spiritual woo woo kooky person who believes in, and in this, the, the power of conversation to transform lives. Like it is my life. And for 20 something years, I completely denied it as nonsense. I I remember my mom had the book blink uh, by Malcolm Gladwell. Which is, uh, I, again, I dismissed it for like five years. Like, I'm not going to read that. It's BS. It's, you know, like pseudoscience talking about decisions before decisions. Like it's nonsense, self-help crap. Like I'm not going to read it. I had no, I have no idea actually where I, where that was based in, but that was my life. Um, and I, uh, it was just like wholeheartedly dismissed this whole industry because that was how I thought about things. And so I thought, oh, this is people who are just motivational speakers. They get on stage, they get people amped up, um, or they go and they charge a whole bunch of money as consultants to, again, get people hyped up and to teach them the stuff that we all already know, which is like, make goals and do them, do the stuff, <laughs> right? Like, like it's not hard. Uh, that was like, that was my whole, my whole perspective. Um, and the 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 way that I allowed myself to open to it is that I started, uh, I had a career as a marketer and um, largely saw the, the way that I describe it is that leadership as a model is broken. We have a lot of people who are disengaged at work. We have a lot of people who are unhappy at work. We have a lot of toxic cultures where people don't really like to go in to do the thing that they spend most of their life doing. And um, that was my experience generally of the business world. And so I started... Uh, I identified mindfulness as a tool to help us to to open a door to speak about leadership in the way that I that I thought it could be spoken about. And I'm not kidding. I as I started to get speaking opportunities in this, I put coaching on my website because I thought, oh, coaches get paid a bunch of money. I'll just sit with someone. I'll tell them what to do, and that's coaching. Um, and then uh, someone saw me speak and they asked me to coach them. And I literally Googled how do I onboard a coaching client. And as I said yes to coaching them made up a rate. They said yes. And then I started doing it, but I, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, but it was like a couple of conversations in when I was like, oh, this thing is really special. Like just, just having the opportunity to sit with someone who is not in our day to day, um, who has a different perspective, who's willing to ask us questions or point to things that are really uncomfortable for us that causes something to happen differently. And I actually don't need to know all the answers in order to help. And so there's like, that was kind of like the door creaking open for me to see that maybe all this stuff that people are talking about isn't nonsense. Yeah. It's, I mean, there's lots, there's lots in there that I'm curious about the, the first one was, you know, when you say that for 20 something years, you dismissed this kooky woo woo spiritual side of you, 
I guess I, I kind of heard that in one way and then suddenly saw it in another. And I'm curious if either of these is right or if it's something different. Yeah. Is, is that that when you look back now, you can see that there was always this spiritual woo-woo kooky side? Or is it that something about the transformation that's happened over the last few years has opened that up or maybe both but has has yeah. developed that side of you and like no, what were you dismissing? always there it was always he was there. always there he was always there really curious and uh, it felt largely unsafe to explore uh-huh. um that's that side and um I, I was i was i i got love and belonging by knowing all of the answers i was really good at school in fact, Toku gave me some some feedback as he was one of the first readers in my book. So I, I speak in the very intro about being class valedictorian in high school. It was not that big of a deal to me. In fact, it felt as if it was a requirement for me to actually continue to receive love. So I, I dismiss it. I don't, I don't like own that part of me that much. It, it was just kind of like how life had to be because I still see it as I... um like there's a part of me that still wishes that I had, I had been reading Malcolm Gladwell when I was in high school, that I had been listening to even like Tony Robbins when I was growing up, that I had been, you know, like just diving into Wayne Dyer, who's from Michigan where I'm from. I'm like, Oh my gosh, like we have this connection. And, and all of that felt um, absurd. It was like, no one will take me seriously. They won't see the part of me that is actually brilliant and smart and capable and hardworking if I allow this sort of spiritual side, this other side to to be seen. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. And were there, like, are there memories from your, I don't know, childhood, adolescence, early twenties of that? Like, how did it show itself, that part of you, even in tiny ways or even just to you? Because it must've been there. It must've been kind of doing something in that time. Yeah. When I was like in second or third grade, I would devour books on um Greek mythology. Uh, yeah. So so mythology which has always been like the stories of how we are as humans I've just like always been massively interesting. Um when I was in high school, I was very fascinated in Buddhism and and the sort of Tibetan culture and that way of being. And so it's manifested in these curiosities and things that were like like close enough that it felt safe to uh to like dive into a bit and i've i've always i don't know always always but say since high school had a had a perspective on organized religion that is like hey i don't understand how the christian version of god would um send all of these people to hell and say they cannot be redeemed simply because it was before jesus was born or simply because they grew up on the other side of the world. Like that just doesn't, that like never made sense to me. And so I, I remember a conversation, I, I think in high school, I was, I was like, I remember being, speaking of like having the memory of the place, it was in my basement doing laundry with my mom. And I said, and she was like, are you, she was like, I'm a bit nervous or worried that you're not religious, that you don't have anything to hold on to. And I was like, no, mom, look, I'm maybe not religious, but I'm deeply spiritual. And I believe that every God exists so long as we believe in it. And like, I look back, I'm like, why, how did I say that in high school? Like I didn't, I, I was not le- like in an environment of learning that, but it was like that belief system was sort of in my, in my essence since I was quite young. Yeah. 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 What a thing, like what a beautiful memory. 
thing to remember mm. and yeah like it sounds like you didn't you know if if i don't know if i got this quite right but if the if the valedictorian in you is still worried that you did, weren't reading tony robbins earlier because if you've been reading that you'd be better uh, it sounds like you were doing something early on thank that you. allows you aged whatever you just said to say that to your mum in the basement um thank you yeah beautiful and, and i'll say i have deep gratitude for my mom's like i feel my mom's love in that conversation and yeah. she's really similar to me where she has often hidden this part of her, this side of her, this exploratory, what else is their side? And so I think even if it, it was sort of an implicit, the water we swam in, um, which is why I don't have any specific moments, but I, I have to, you know, give a lot to her for having the courage to say stuff like that to me and to open her heart so that we can, we could connect and I could say, oh, it's cool for me to explore this new thing. Yeah. Yeah. Lovely. And so you, <laughs> you saw leadership. Yeah. What a thing to see. Like you saw the flaws in it and yeah. you saw, yeah, that, that idea that people spend all their life in work and, and, and how painful that is for so many people and how, I guess it doesn't have to be that way. That's some part of that story, isn't it? And it, it comes across in, mm-hmm. like I said to you before we switched on, I haven't read all of the book, but it, it, you know, it really comes across in, in in some of the parts that I have, this sense of vision, like I, I like I guess I catch it in myself sometimes. And I people are like, why did you, you know, and I remember been asked like, why did you end up doing coaching? And for me, I just had this like idealism in there somewhere yeah, that it, yeah. it didn't have to be like that, right? Like it didn't right. have to be like even in some of my pre-coaching work, it was like it was quite good. It was better than some, like I was working on stuff that I liked. It was just mm-hmm. also draining me and stressing me and all those things. And couldn't it be different? And it sounds like you had some of your version of that. But I love this bit. You kind of said it into. So it's like, and then I started getting speaking gigs doing talking about this. So like, what yeah. you're gonna fill in that detail? Like, what was that? <laughs> How did that happen? And and wait, and yeah. in, in both in the book and I think in the in the TEDx talk, you talk about not. Ha- talking about meditation, maybe this is a slightly different thing, talking about meditation, but not meditating, something like that. Yeah. I, so the, the story is um, like, I knew I was going to start a business, right? This, this at some point in my early twenties, like, look, I'm, this is happening. Um, I partly, I think because I was fed up working for other people because like you, I had this idealism was like, so I started, I'll back up even more. I started my career at Michigan's business school, the Ross school of business where um, um, a guy named Dave Ulrich, who has been voted the number one HR thinker in the world, was on faculty. And so he was producing all this research saying, like, this is the stuff we need to have positive cultures. And so I was like, I, you know, I was immersed in that. That was what I was selling. I was on the marketing team. And then I would, you know, go to workplaces, hear friends talk, just sometimes see in our own workplace, like none of that was being implemented. And it, I like couldn't understand it. It was like my brain could not understand. We have all of this data, all of this proof that if we do this thing, life will get better, but we're not doing it. Like, like I could not understand it. And so as I left to um, other jobs after that and saw, you know, worse and worse cultures and other things, it was like, and I was like enough, like someone has to make this thing happen. And in December of 2014, I... Uh, read a report that talked about um, drop-in meditation in New York City. 
um, and an organization where they would drop in, they would invite like high potential leaders, folks in tech and on Wall Street to come and do meditation. And they talked about the benefits that that created for them in their lives. And I was like, the the stuff that they say that meditation creates is the same organizational uh, sort of characteristics that that all these leadership speakers are talking about. Like it, it, I saw a very clear path and um, yeah, I had never meditated before. I, I was interested in Buddhist um, yeah, of course. Buddhism. I, I showed you earlier Donatello, who is a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. Yeah. Uh, when I when I was young, I idolized them. I loved them. And yeah, they, me they meditated. Did they meditate? Um, God, I didn't remember did. that. So, so in the- now I suddenly I can kind of see them in the, I can see them like doing it now that you've said that. Uh, sorry, yeah. sorry, for people who are listening, if you're watching on YouTube, you've just seen Donatello. It's like a, what is like a, a four inch tall plastic action figure. Yes. I think when I, when yeah. I was about um, five, my mom has this kind of, she has this great, like, painful slightly painful story to tell her and her friends you know we didn't have that much money there were these kind of slightly knockoff turtle figures that you get uh-huh. and they got them and then they all fell to bits so luckily it wasn't just our fa- we, like it wasn't just our family that had the knockoff turtle figures it was the next the neighbors as well something uh, like that but but i think in the end i think in the end I, yeah that. in the end i got some actual an actual one which looks like that but but yeah so so yeah so they meditated did they go on you, yeah, you were going to tell I, the story remember... of this vague memory yeah in the very first Ninja Turtles movie, Leonardo, who is a leader, is sitting under a tree, cross-legged, like, you know, in Lotus, meditating, going, um. And I thought that you had to do a thing to meditate. I thought, like, I was like, oh, I don't know how to do that. I can't. It's too hard. But, you know, like, the very, like, Western American response to meditation. I don't I don't know how to do that. It's too hard. And um, and so I read this report, and I was like, that's the, that's the answer, man. Like teach people mindfulness. It's the path. It's the doorway. And um, so I said, I'm going to, I'm going to start a company teaching mindfulness in corporations. Um, the, the, the kind of fuller story is that that was even uh, like a strategy to get what I really wanted, which is to create sort of a third space, a co-working space that is unplugged. Um, and maybe even half of it is super high tech and then half of it has no no technology at all. You can come and have conversations, do art, write in notebooks, meditate, but it's I'm imagining it's a way you've got some kind of technology that. to deaden the white the 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 data signals so that no one can get on their phones even if they try. That would be cool. Yeah, it? like it was like basically like there's a big bowl and you just drop your phone in when you get there, you have your locker or something. Mm-hmm. Um but I was like, well, I don't know how to open, I don't know anything about real estate, I don't know how to open a space, I don't have money, I don't have community, like how do I do this? Oh, I can teach mindfulness as lunch and learns in corporations. They'll see that I'm legit. Uh, corporations have money and people will start to respect me and follow me. And then once I have that, I'll, I'll have capital to build this space. And so two weeks later, I went to uh, Shambhala meditation drop-in in Nashville, where I lived. Uh, a month after that, I went to a two-day or three-day Shambhala sort of level one training or retreat. And I just dove in and I said, I'm going to do this thing. And um, I, at my retreat, I met uh, an amazing mentor, Kashanti Maria, who she literally, I, like the first the first day of the retreat, it was it started like 8 a.m., and I, especially then like not very much of a morning person and especially like I'm quite permeable in the morning to other people's energy. And so it takes me a bit. So I, I got there and I was, they had like a, 
uh, table set up with some food on it. I was behind the table in the corner eating food, trying to stay like unconsciously trying to stay away from people. I, I didn't really have awareness of like that that was ha- happening. I just knew like I was tired. I don't want to talk yet. And she walked up and she was like, "You're you're you're big. You need to not be hiding behind the table. What are you doing here?" And I was like, "Who is who is this?" <laughs> Yeah. And uh, she's like, what are you doing here? I was like, well, funny enough, I have this crazy idea. I'm going to teach mindfulness in corporations, but I don't know how to meditate. So I'm here to learn. And she was like, cool. We're supposed to meet. Um, my name is Maria. I um, am a therapist and I teach meditation. And I had an, a 20 year or something career in international business and I have an MBA. Let's talk. And that like catapulted, we designed my programs together. Suddenly I felt like I could do it because I didn't feel like a fraud. And so we set up an arrangement where she would lead folks in meditation and I would talk about the science behind it. Um, because again, I was, I was speaking in corporations. I was in the Bible belt to, to, to introduce this idea of mindfulness in 2014, 2015, which is ubiquitous today. Like it's, it, it's pretty much everywhere. When we think about mindfulness, but back then, it was not that commonplace. Um, so we set up an arrangement where she would do that. And I, I would, I would speak on the benefits of mindfulness and, you know, enroll people in how that could help their organizations. And um, this was February, March of 2015 in June of 2015. I had a, a I had started to tell folks about it. I had a friend who um, was running some workshop. She asked if we could lead a session. I had another friend who went to college with who uh, ran an organization of students at uh, UNC Chapel Hill here in North Carolina. Um, she said, will you do a weekend workshop on mindfulness for us? And and that was a start. And so, so when I say that I got opportunities, what really happened was I was really scared to market myself. So I would tell friends and then some of the friends said, hey, will you come and come and do this? Because I was terrified to cold call. Yeah. And, and so it really came from, from me just having conversations with, with friends. Which I don't know if this is common for you, but with, with, with Rich and Toku and those other people hovering over you, like now that's if a coach comes to me and says, how do you grow your business? I'd say, well, one thing to do is like, talk about what you're doing to your friends yeah. until they start <laughs> telling people about it. And it's like, it's like actually a very effective and you can it hear is. it in that story, right? If, yeah. Well, yeah. let's, let's catch it. Like it's effective. This is not to put off any coaches hearing this, but like, I imagine that it was effective for you to do that because those friends, the ones that did connect you to something or asked you to do something, they got how congruent it was with you and they felt like that it was for real in some way. Because yeah. we've probably all had conversations with people who tell us about a thing and underneath we're like, you know, even if we're being super polite and saying, oh, sounds great, you know, under underneath there's a part of me going, yeah, you're not the person I'm going to recommend if my sister needs that thing you're talking about, right? Whereas That's they so didn't, true. they didn't feel that with you. I and I, I'm um, personally on the extreme side of skeptical with friends who are starting a new thing. Like I, like I trust you as a human, and I want to see that the thing you're doing is going to last, is going to stick. And so, what that means is, as a service provider, I am uh, intensely focused on making sure I establish trust. And, and some of these folks, these friends who, who, um, so the first kind of big conference speaking gig, 
I, I, I got, this is where I, where I, uh, my first coaching client came from. It was a former marketing client. And, and so what I started to see was I had spent years establishing trust, even if it was in a different industry. And so I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I am like all in on do great work <laughs> uh, and, and establish trust and good things will happen. And I'm just starting to learn over the last two, three, four years. Also like ask for help, like make, <laughs> also, make do, do some marketing as well, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Like do, 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 do that thing. And, um, and yeah, like trust that you're legit, right? Like it, I, I was, I'm far on the other side of the spectrum very often. Yeah. Oh, I just want to catch it. You said a really um, beautiful thing in there, which I think is really quite hard to hold sometimes for people when they're shifting careers of any kind, perhaps particularly into coaching, which is you had years of established trusted relationships from whatever you were doing before. And those people, I caught myself saying this to client once, it's like, if like the shift makes sense when you're doing that because it makes sense to you. So it's going to make sense on some level to anybody who's really seen you before. Mm-hmm. So if you've got those trusted relationships, just because you go back and go, I'm doing this slightly weird thing now about mindfulness that looks like it's nothing to do with marketing. They're going to be like, ah, that makes total sense, Matt, because even subconsciously underneath somewhere, they won't say this, but it, it might be true. I felt that kooky woo woo side of you the whole time. Yeah. And it's why I liked yeah. you. Right, and it's why we had that connection and it's really what these people here need so come and come and speak at this conference yeah it's almost you know as we talk about hiding that part of us it's like i trust you more now that you've told me about this Um, which is really uh it's a wonderful thing to receive and to be able to offer to other people to say like oh yeah i didn't i didn't know i couldn't have spoken that but now that you say that makes complete sense like hell yes let's go i got (laughs) you (laughs) <laughs> yeah and I, and I want to get into i want to get into coaching because it's kind of a cool obviously it's what it's kind of what what this show is about but but there's just something like um very matter of fact or direct about the way you talk about a whole set of things in that story so i knew i was going to start a business i did this thing with maria i we got these things hmm. That's probably a question here. I guess it's something like, was was that, that's what it sounds like in the retelling. Was that what it felt like at the time? Like, what did it feel like through that that process? Yeah, generally, I feel fair. I feel fear. I feel afraid often. And when I tell these stories, I, I don't include it that much because it's sort of like, it's a presupposition for me in many ways. <laughs> I'm always afraid. So like, why yeah, would like, I mention that's basically, it? Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and what... What I when I'm clear on a thing, um, nothing stops me. Like I, I and to, like so, it's kind of like ho- like holding a lot of things at once. So I was very clear that that mindfulness was the next step. I was very clear that I was going to do this work to impact organizations and leaders. I was very clear that that was new and I was scared. Um, and you know, speaking of it, I was also had massive imposter syndrome, but it, it was sort of like, I just kind of guessed that that was what came along with it. Um, if I can say that and, and in many ways that I think it held me back from having more clients earlier, because again, I was afraid to sort of market or, or kind of own and claim that, um, 
And yeah, like, like I tell it matter of factly because that's often how life occurs to me. I mean, I like, I, I, this is fast forwarding a bit, but I wrote this as coaching because last, um, yeah, last year in February, at the end of February into early March, I went to Hawaii with my now fiance. That's where we got engaged. We had this beautiful 10 day trip as a part of like me recovering from the year before. And we woke up, we had a very early flight. I had woke up at like three 30 or four in the morning. And again, I'm not a morning person. I wake up with the sun. So it's dark and the book was channeled through me. Like there was a, there was a voice that said, you're writing a book. And I was like, cool. When it was like this year. And I was like, I don't know if that's possible. Um, and, and the outline was in front of my face. We got to the airport and I wrote 80% of the outline on the plane. I, I say this matter of fact, because that's how it happened. I had feelings, but then I got home and I just carved out an hour every day. And I wrote like I, when life moves through me in that way, uh, it just does. And the downside of that, and I, I love that you're pointing to this that I can often forget is that it's a big deal that I wrote a book, but because I said yes and that yes. And then what happened after that felt quite effortless. Um, I, I can discount that. Now the publishing process of the book, I can talk about how that was hell. <laughs> like that, that yeah, caught me off guard and that, you know, like, and so there, there's things that I can speak to matter of factly because they don't occur to me is that, that challenging. It was sort of like, yeah, I just kind of like walked through the things, but then there are other parts that just were like extremely challenging. Um, and sometimes the things that are hard for other people are not hard for me <laughs> and vice versa. I know I find that quite a hard, I want everybody to struggle with exactly what I struggle with. Cause then I'll feel more, <laughs> I'll feel more normal. Um, well, it, it, sometimes I, I, um, it can, I can disconnect because by the way, I have a strategy that an unconscious strategy often of having a lot of things look really easy from the outside. Hmm. Again, like I, I got love from being the valedictorian. And so, so I learned to make it look effortless. Uh, and so what that can create is a disconnect where people are like, either one, Matt doesn't have any problems. So, and Matt's doing amazing things. Meanwhile, over here, I'm like, they're not amazing. I'm just doing them. Like, I feel like a fraud all the time. Or two, I can forget that things are harder for other people than not hard for me. And I'm like, why aren't you just doing the thing? <laughs> like, come on, just do it. Like, I, so I, I can lose empathy in those moments too. Mm. <laughs> yeah, so much, so much in that matter we could, we could kind of go into, but. And definitely, let's definitely talk a little bit about the pain of the publishing process. And like, let's slow it down because there was a really like beautiful thing in there. Like, don't forget that it's a big deal that you wrote this book. And yeah. like, what, like I read there were some of the reviews on Amazon, and they're, like they're beautiful. Apart from that one really, really funny one star one, which I'm really glad you <laughs> you sounded like you took your one star review. I saw it on your Instagram. Um, it's yeah. like a picture near the top. But next, by the way, everybody, next to a quote from Marshall Goldsmith about the Marshall Goldsmith, yeah. is that right? About the book. Yeah, so it's Marshall like Goldsmith. you were like making yourself like no one's in any doubt that it's a good book, right? At that point, when you've got Marshall Goldsmith and Anon from Amazon giving you a one star and, and writing, I wrote it down somewhere. What was the what was the thing? Nothing they original. Nothing, nothing original. That's yeah. the whole it's, review, I think. 
And the title of the the title this is hilarious. Like all of this is so I literally laughed out loud. Yeah, but just to catch that, says, I'm really like that's an amazing thing also yeah. that you literally laughed out loud. Because <laughs> I remember, in fact, no, that's not true. So I got a first I got a first one star rating for one of my books, and I felt mm. very neutral about it. It didn't bother me at all. It was actually when I got a three-star review with something written in it. But I was like, I mean, everything in it was interesting because I was able to slow down and go, yeah, pretty much everything she said here is it's actually true about my book. It's just that I think that's part of why the book is good. And she thinks it's why it's mediocre. But it, that was a lot harder for me yeah. to absorb, actually. So to have the one-star review with some text there, someone who's thought enough to write it, that's yeah. like well done for holding like that lightly enough. Well, I got a second one star a couple of weeks after that really that like knocked me sideways a bit. That like uh. that got more. This one was super hilarious because the title said average. It gave me one star and then said nothing original. So like all of that I was like, there's like <laughs> this <laughs> like like can we just have a conversation? Can I understand? Like, just <laughs> tell me more about your mind. Cause all none of those things actually add up for me. Um <laughs> well, because like you said in the Instagram post. There are some excellent doodles in there, which are for sure original because you did them. Right. Yeah. No, I was like that. I know that that's actually not true. So <laughs> it's a good, it's a good one when, you know, I think that's a really good technique when when the mind is going a bit nuts on something like a one-star review. It's like factually check it, fact, fact check. It's like, yeah, this is not a hundred percent true because I I have some drawings which are literally original to this book. So even if, as you say, one of the one parts of it, I'm, I feel like I'm channeling my coaches and teachers sometimes, or speaking yeah. their words. The doodles, for sure, original. So this is not There's true. My, so I can open my, some space yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, sorry, I interrupted. The second one. Yeah. Yeah. It it got me a bit, and I don't recall the exact wording. I read it once, and I think I was like, okay, I need to put that away. Hmm. Um. Yeah, maybe it was in, that one actually that... that I noticed, and I thought, yeah, this one would this one would have got me. Maybe it wasn't. Yeah, it was. It was saying that, like, you know, this is um, not actually quite useful for coaches. Um, It's right, quite flowery, flowery, flowery language. Um, And uh, yeah, I mean, what I what I take from that is like, I don't think you actually read the whole book. And so it's sort of like, oh, like read the book. Like, if you're going to give me a one star, like, I'll read the book. Uh, And two, I'm. Like, I'm sorry that I missed you mm. because I, I spent, I, 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 I quite intentionally tried to use language that folks would understand. Um, and, and my intention behind writing the book was to give a framework for coaches that they could land on the ground and, and apply, even if I use really high level language as well, I, I, I kind of, I like personally think I did a good job of both. And so to hear of like, nope, that like, I'm just going to entirely dismiss the one thing. It was like, oh, okay. Maybe I didn't do as good of a job as I thought. And um, yeah. maybe I do stink, but you know. But then the... it's like, also look at the other 40 reviews or whatever, which are yeah, most of the people yeah. saying, this is so useful. Um, and I, I understand why they're saying that as well. Um, so yeah, look, well done. Because it's not nothing Thank to write you. a book and to write one about coaching and to write one that is obviously really useful to a lot of people. You know, from those reviews, I can kind of feel it reading the book as well. So let's hold that. And then there's let's a, re- go on. Yeah. Oh, I, there's a so there's a show I love uh, called How I Met Your Mother that ran yeah. a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there, there's a moment where the the main character um, tries to add a plus one to a wedding with like a week before the wedding, and he's like, "How is it a big deal?" And the bride just laughs and says, "Plan a wedding." 
<laughs> and and that like that I I like I like heard her voice when when I, when I get that review and I'm like I like laugh I'm like write a book yeah like go like <laughs> I'm like just see what go through the process and see what it's like and then and then rethink if you would add that same review because yeah. it has made me a lot a lot more generous when people put art into the world by a long shot yeah yeah absolutely and I think um I think by the time I got to my books I was quite. I'm quite glad that they came after so much work and thinking about creating things for me mm. because I had by that point managed. I mean, the, the first book particularly took a lot, but the, the and the second one, the, the the other ones less. But the I'd 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 managed to internalize some of those messages that we hear, like you know the 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 Teddy Roosevelt speech that Brene Brown loves about like listen to the man in the arena, not the critic, right? And it is a really different thing. Like you're right when you're in when you're speaking to someone who's been in the arena of writing a book or publishing it, it does have a different. Even if they were to say, which hasn't happened to me thankfully so far, but maybe it will yeah. soon, your book is is crap. Uh-huh. That w- it would come with a different feel to the feel yeah. of a friend right. of mine who's never put anything of themselves out in the world saying your book is crap. Um, yeah. And the other one, of course, is which I think I got from Litvin a bit is. But also from other people, it's like, yeah, it's not for everybody. And that is okay. Mm-hmm. Um, if people don't get it, some people don't get it. That's okay, I think. Um, that I'm learning increasingly that. And I can tell that to people as a marketer. Like, you want ones and tens. <laughs> yeah. Right? You want people to say, this is not for me or for me. But, but for your heart to hold that is a different thing. <laughs> yeah. 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 And do, do I have it right? You wrote and published four books in a year? It was about a year. The published, yeah, they, they were written. They were written um, over three years and then published. And then there was like a two-year gap and then they were published over one year. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't, they were all written in that period of time, which I have to keep reminding people because the books really are about people getting out of their own way and finally doing the things that they've been wanting to do, like writing a book. And it, I, so I'm always really careful with the practical how I did that stuff so that it, yeah. to make it real, because I want it to be exactly real. And I don't want anyone to think there's no possible way I can write and publish four books in a year because like Robbie did. Therefore, I'm not meant to be an author because I didn't write and publish four books in a year. So I'm always like catching those things. But yeah, they did come out in a year, which was kind of relentless, which is partly why now this year, and I, I, we were saying a little bit before, we switched on. I've got like a load of stuff going on in personal life. But even before that, I was kind of worn out from the process of publishing four books. And yeah. I also, last year, I set myself a challenge. My my marketing for my book was to try and appear on 100 podcasts in, in 2022. And that plus the books, that was like all my goal energy for like, I don't know how many right. years. So I, I'm on a, on a different, a different, looking for a different energy this year, which has been great in some ways. Because if I was trying to set those kind of ambitious goals for this year, I would have been at this stage abandoning them because of loads of stuff that's happening in, in our lives right now. But um, yeah, let's come back to publishing the books and, and maybe the book a little yeah. bit more in a bit. Let's go to this first, this beginnings of this shift when this first person at the, so the, I think it was the like, the client from Marketing Days invites you to the conference Someone's mm-hmm. looks on your website. I love it that you. So wait, had you? Because before you said, actually, let me let me. I'm going to rewind another bit. You said that you um, you had this kind of skeptical view of coaching. So when you put it on your, when did that change? Did that change when you were finally? It was only two sessions in. You'd put you put it on your website despite thinking it was kind of yeah. 
um, motivational speakers and hype. Total classic marketer move. Love it. Total Love classic, it. right? Like, yeah. Because um, I, what I was trying to do was figure out a sustainable business model for what I was doing. Yeah. And I was looking at this saying, like, I, I'm not, I think that corporations will pay me. I don't know. It's unproven. But all of the um, sort of market research I was doing at folks who were also speaking on this, they said coach. And I was like, okay, I'll put coach on my website. Like that was, it was that almost that simple of like, like, let's at least say it. And then I can put it in my bio. And then maybe one day it'll happen. I love it. I love it. And it's kind of a sign. And then you get asked and then mm -hmm. you do some, and then you felt what could happen. Now, what's interesting is the way you described feeling what it could be like, that there's something to this. You must have been doing it, right? You must have not just been giving motivational speeches and telling people stuff they already they already knew. So yeah. somehow, I mean, partly because you'd googled how do you maybe you'd googled how do you do coaching, but like how do you do coaching, yeah. yeah. But like, what do you think? Oh, maybe it's just a, it's a question like, why why did it totally add up that you were coaching even though you hadn't known known that it was even a thing? I, so, so I, the, the first client, she came up and talked to me after I gave my presentation and I fell in love with her. Like, I, like we, like what I, I, I was like, I hope this person calls me again. And it was several months or some number of months before, before she did. But what I saw was all we were doing was being in a conversation where I was just like, loving her like it, it was it was like the most one of the most natural things which is why i was skeptical and questioning like am i really coaching because i was just showing up as me and i was doing way more advice giving than i do now as a coach I, you know i was like right, right like i was still finding my way and feeling my way and had well, not and if, if it came training. partly through the mind, mindfulness thing there probably was some teaching or some uh, training yeah. that she was expecting and wanted as part of that which was probably really exactly valuable. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> and, yeah, and, <laughs> and really what I saw was like, oh my gosh, like I'm just showing up as me. I'm having this type of conversation. This person trusts me and I just get to like love and trust them. And did you, and did you have that language of love? That's what it felt like at that time. Or is that probably not, seen later? Probably yeah. not. Yeah. I, so, so with the way I describe my coaching now is hundred percent love and hundred percent challenge. Hmm. So how do we hold both of those at exactly 100% all the time? Um, but yeah, I didn't have that then. Now I can look back. And and, and so immediately, like we, we and I dropped into a space that was not advice giving, was not sagely, you know, me telling my stories. It was not hype, hype man. It was none of those. And it worked. Uh, and so that's, I think, why it didn't take very long for me to rethink it. Yeah. And so then what happened with coaching? And so at, at that point, I had quit my full-time marketing job. I was doing freelance marketing. I had moved across the country from Nashville to Connecticut. And um, the intention was still to um, grow this the, the mindfulness business. The So my first client, I think I charged... $250 a session or maybe less 
maybe $500 a month for four calls. I think that was what it was, $500 a month for four calls. And um, I have an, I had another friend who said, hey, will you coach him for a little bit? I can pay you $20 a session. And I was like, yeah, cool. Let's do that. And they were my first two coaching clients for a year, a year and a half. And I was getting some opportunities to do mindfulness stuff. Um, and I was mostly doing marketing consulting work. And this led us to, um, maybe I had another coaching client by 2018, but that led me to say, and um, like January of 2018, I need to get a training. Cause like, I, I'm, I wanna, I'm more and more focused on this coaching thing. I'm less and less interested in speaking uh, or running workshops. And also um, I'm asking people- Why do you think that was? Part of it, yeah. Part of it is that I realized um, kind of twofold. One, mindfulness became more of an en vogue thing. And so yoga teachers were taking $50 an hour to run these workshops. And I was asking for one to $300 an hour to run the workshops. And so it was a matter of like, how do I, I didn't know how to justify it because I was still brand new in the process. It was like, yeah, I feel like a fraud all the time. I don't know why you should pay me. And also if you only value it at 50 bucks, then this is probably not a conversation. Um, so, so that was part of it. And then part of it is the way that I'm thinking about it. So I created this framework for mindful leadership that became my TEDx talk. Um, and that is still, that's kind of the high level what of what I think is successful leadership. And I realized, um, now looking back what I, I couldn't articulate, but I, then, but I can articulate now is. I still have this bias that just speaking about it in workshops and not really getting into it, um, getting in the in the deep practice of taking a look at ourselves so we can develop self-awareness, taking a look at our relational patterns so that we can develop awareness of others, um, having accountability so we can focus on what's important, you know, like, like being in these deep conversations about it was not going to produce the what, like, I, so the how became coaching. It was like, do the stuff that gets us to the what. And so I immediately went like, oh, cool, let's go deep. Mm -hmm. And so in many ways, unfortunately, I abandoned the speaking maybe too early um, in favor of coaching. But I found myself that I was more and more drawn to these coaching conversations and what coaching was and how it all worked. Yeah. And so there's some then, ah, I need something more, you were saying, a training, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, well, I don't even know if I'm coaching Yeah, <laughs> and I'm doing this entirely in a bubble. And uh, so I, I, again, I lived in Connecticut. I looked at an ICF certified in-person training. And um, at that point I was still in Rich Lippman's community, still at a Facebook group. And I saw Toku post about the Samurai Coaching Dojo. And honestly, he completely tricked me. I told him this later. He had a, he, I signed up some for something. He sent an email that said, Hey, I'm opening spots just to talk to people. If you want to grab 20 minutes with me, let's talk. And what he did was send me in the coaching dojo sales funnel. Uh, so I <laughs> so I signed up just to get a conversation with this guy who seemed like he was doing cool work. And in in 20, 30 minutes with Toku, it became abundantly clear that that's what I was looking for was the dojo. Yeah. And specifically what that was, was um, working with, people who were not all beginners. So I looked at the curriculum of the, the training and half of the curriculum was psychology stuff that I had learned and embodied. And I was like, well, I don't want to waste 
half of my time, like rehashing this stuff. Uh, and I, again, had a, a little bit of judgment on, on people who would go through a training, but not make it their vocation, not be super committed. And again, like when I'm clear on something, I'm clear. I was like, look, this is going to, this is what I'm doing. I only want to be with people who are going to make this work. And Toku in, you know, we talked about the dojo and what I realized was I would, I would be one of the youngest and earliest coaches in the cohort. A lot of these folks have been coaching for years. I would be in the same room with them. And the, the, the type of learning was not book learning, was not lecture. It was in the moment practice with feedback. And I said, I want to be the dumbest person in the room, which is sometimes challenging for me to do. And I imagine it would be really challenging in, in an early level coaching. So let's, let's go do this dojo thing. And it profoundly changed who I am as a coach, what I believed about coaching, what I saw available as coaching. Um, and I, I found belonging for one of the first times in my life with a new, this side of me that we talked about that I was afraid to let out had full reign and permission to be let out. And I went, Oh my gosh, this feels so good. Yeah. Beautiful. What do you, I can't remember if Toku and I talked about this. I can't also, I can't remember if we talked about it and I can't remember if like what I've learned about the dojo over the years as someone who hasn't been a member. So tell me like it, the practice, that's one thing I hear there, the people, what, but what else, or maybe it's just those things. I mean, there's quite big things that you just said about belonging, but what, as you look back, particularly perhaps on that early experience with it, what stands out for you? What were they doing there that that made it so powerful for you? Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll expand on the others, but first I want to talk about kind of the nature of the curriculum and teaching. Um, so Toku is a philosophy major in like Toku. Toku is questions, right? Like that's like I'm saying. <laughs> And, and the curriculum, um, essentially every week posed a question or a phenomenon in coaching without giving an answer. So in week one, the, the topic was mental models and all the topic said, it was like defined mental models, which is basically how the, the structures and systems and definitions we use to, to create our world or define our world. And then it said, your client has mental models and you have mental models. And then together, you both have mental models about coaching. All of that is happening. Go play. Hmm. And that was exactly what I needed. Cause like, I, that, like, again, like I didn't want a curriculum of like, here's the dot, 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 like way to do this. Or here's all the stuff that's happening. I was like, I know all the stuff that's happening. Like um, what I wanted was like a, a like a, a playground to land in and then new stuff to pay attention to that I realized, and I just um, embodied pretty quickly, I think that this stuff never ends. Like I could, I could for the rest of my life as a coach, enter into a coaching conversation simply from the frame of frame of what are the mental models that are occurring between me and my client? And I will never get all the answers. And that is deeply appealing to me. <laughs> And uh, I think Toku, you know, like I was like the perfect student for Toku in that sense, which is like, cool, like we can eat all of it up and we it's never enough. 
And that was how the whole dojo worked, where they're basically like, we're going to send you out and not give you an answer and you get to practice. And so that was that was part one. Part two is that I was in uh, my small group was a guy who was uh, uh, used to be in marketing and also software, like a business coach. I was in with a former rabbi, Ted Ryder, who I mentioned my in my acknowledgments. Um, I was in um, with someone who had worked in like consulting, um, like big business stuff. I, I, I was like, what I got to see was that any presupposition I had about what coaching was supposed to be was blown out the window. And every time I saw one of them coach, I learned something new about how coaching could look. And what it really allowed for me was like, I was like, I could own myself as a coach um, really powerfully thanks to that. And then at some point, is this right? You became part of the, you led some dojos. Yeah. So yeah, how did that happen? So, so I, I was a student in the dojo in the spring of 2018 and in uh, the spring of 2019, and I was still just kind of like hanging out. They had some like post dojo membership stuff. I was in, in that forever. Um, and was Aaron Caulfield and I ran a men's group together that year. Uh, Kevin Lawrence and I, who was my sparring partner, we, 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 I was still in and around the community wholeheartedly for a while. In the spring of 2019, they asked me to be a senpai, which is a, a, a sensei or a teacher in training in the dojo. And that was its own fundamentally different experience, which was really high flame leadership training. So less on my coaching and more on how I was showing up in developing the program. Um, really, I really hated it and I really loved it. I and mean, it was super challenging. And and I, I don't know if you know Adam Quiney and Bay LeBlanc Quiney. Yeah, I've met them both again from that time in, in Rich's community. They in, were, in Rich's they were community. around, yeah. So they were also supporting me in leadership there. And and uh Adam is the like biggest pain in the ass I've ever met when he's in support of your leadership, because he is such an unyielding stand for for anyone he's supporting to be their fullest self. And I, I'm not joking for for a year straight, anytime I saw Adam on a call, I my body was emotionally triggered. I would get sweaty. I would feel nervous. I would have to go pee. Like all of the stuff physiologically happened every time I saw Adam, even if he wasn't focused on me for a year. Um, I'm really grateful for it. And I hated it so, so hard. Um, so I did, I did a year of senpai training. And then after that, um, it's, and so 2020 and 2021, um, uh, Christina and Toku decided to go their separate ways as, you know, in running the business. And since I had done all that training and Toku and I became, became close, he asked me if I wanted to co-lead it with him. And so for two years, I was, I was co-sensei the last two years of the dojo. Yeah. So I think um, that actually was exactly when Toku and I spoke on this show. So I just remember mm -hmm. that as a game, just, just as they were deciding to go their separate ways. And, and probably like, for all I know, we go back and he'll, it'll be like the picture. He'll be like, I'm just going to get my friend Matt to co-lead it with me. I don't think he did say that in the, in the conversation, yeah. but that's exact. that reminds me because that's exactly when, yeah, when we were speaking. Right. And then there's this, <clears throat> so I imagine throughout that time, there's this thing happening with your coaching, you know, doing those three things, right? Like, um, learner, uh, what was the word for the kind of tr tr trainer in training? senpai so like mm -hmm. learner senpai and then co-leading like each of those will have been upgrading the 
ways of being that you had with the people you were coaching if you were coaching but like you said you don't you know there was it wasn't much of a coaching business at the start of that like you were playing with it so what happened yeah. with the people you were working with and and how did that shift over those three or four years i i started to um again like own more of myself as a coach i still didn't have it took me until 2020 to fully uh kind of like replace my marketing income with coaching income. And so 2018, 2019 up, you know, into 2020, I was, I was increasing my client load. Um, the, what started to happen with my clients was, you know, if, if I worked together with someone say for a year and it took 10 months to figure out what we were actually working on, uh, that started to get closer and closer, you know, in these days it's like three weeks, right? Like if people are going to quit, quit with like go and break down and quit. It's like in the first month and a half. Um, and back then it was like, you know, like nine, 10 months in it was, so I'm finding what I'm finding is that we have the ability, um, to discover what we're really working with my clients earlier. Thanks to a lot of this. Like we, we can get into that stuff quicker and make that real in some way for people who are listening, who, and, and I think I include myself in this. I can kind of guess at what you mean by that. But what do you mean by finding out what we're working on? Like, how does that how does that look? So, so as a coach, what I am constantly interested in, I'm looking at a, a couple of questions. One, what is currently impossible for my client? What do they think they can never do? And so often what that looks like is that's a thing that's too scary for them to even ask for. And so it might be, like I want, uh, I worked with a, a startup founder once and uh, one would think that working with a startup founder, having the coaching partially paid for by their investors, we would work on business. We started working on romantic relationships because it, it was like, what feels impossible? Like, oh, having like a deeply committed, romantic, intimate relationship. And it became clear to both of us when we saw that, um, that that would shift everything in their life. And so what I what and what I'm like, that was the kind of the crux, right? Like if we looked at relational stuff, that would shift everything. And it would be the stickiest, scariest, most fear-inducing part to look at, right? The part that is kind of like, I don't want to look at that. I can't transform it. It's never changing. Um, and I'd say when I was a younger coach we would have danced around business stuff for a long time. And I would have been afraid to actually point to like, I think this is what's actually happening. So, so that does that, is that a helpful example? Yeah. 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 Great. So it's like seeing that key core thing, the ability to see it and then the courage to risk naming it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cause this might not work and they might go away. <laughs> yeah. And, and how did those people that startup founder or otherwise, where were they coming from as you shifted into coaching? And as the coaching practice, you said over a, you know, you gradually got it to the place where it could it could replace the marketing income. Yeah, like where, where, where were these people coming from as that happened? How were you? We talked about how you developed your practice. How are you developing your coaching business? I guess or the or the pool of clients. I started getting some clients from the dojo, just being in and around the community. Even before I was a teacher, um, just showing up, and you know, and. Yeah, just being there. So the dojo has been a great source of clients. Um, I was doing in-person. I would show up to in-person events after I moved back to Michigan or when I was in Connecticut. Um, so I, I'd go to 
entrepreneur events. I go to networking events. I just talk to people. Um, I went to a college reunion and I, I have a now three plus year client who went to my college, um, which is really fun. Um, and I started a men's group and then Co- Aaron Caulfield came on and, and co-led it with me. And that was just a lot of hustling. It was like, who do you know, who, who might know who, you know, who, you know, like, like that. Cause we set pretty ambitious enrollment goals that we, I think never hit, but it, it got us into a lot of, a lot of movement. And then, um, starting in 2019, I, I was connected with Pylea and Pylea is a coaching organization that's, that was created, spun out of a Silicon Valley based venture capital firm. So they mostly invest in very early stage companies. And they have the thesis that if we invest in founder mental health and well-being first, we'll actually produce better returns. And so that's very much in alignment with my idea of, you know, this like, how do we run organizations effectively and have it not just be primarily uh, profit focused? And um, the way that I got connected with them is I was in person at a coffee meeting with a, uh, an investor in Detroit. And he was like, why did you want to meet with me? And before I knew it, I spoke, I said, uh, because I want every founder in the world to have a coach. And then like inside, this is similar to the book inside was like, holy crap, I guess I'm doing that now. Um, let's go figure out how to do that. And um, that's often what I do. With it. I, I speak absurd things into the world and then try to like catch up. It's like my feet go out in front of me and then I'm trying, like my body's trying to, <laughs> to catch up. Um and so once I got connected with Pylea, they were the source of some clients. And so they're, they're sort of a client matchmaking service for coaches who are in the network. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of places that I, things I wanted to ask you about that we've just kind of touched on, work out where, yeah. to, where to go. But the the first one is maybe those, because that's one of the three kind of seemingly impossible goals that are at the start of of the, the book. And I was wondering yeah. where they came from. And there's where one of them came from. I wonder yeah. if you could speak a little to the other two and um, did they arrive in the same way? Like for you, where do these, were they, do you think things that you were afraid to kind of, that you weren't allowed to, that were impossible to you. And then somehow they, you let, it sounds like that one you just let out. Is that where they came from for you? It, the others I sort of backed into. Um, so even that one um, has an earlier um, seed in that, so as I, I said, my friend Carmen invited me to run a workshop in the early mindfulness days for students. Mm-hmm. And so when I was developing the workshop, I thought, I don't want to just go teach mindfulness because like, if we can't apply it to anything, why does it matter? And so I thought these are really incredible students. So the top, top 1% of 1% of students are really amazing. They're going to be the CEOs in 10, 20, 30 years. And so therefore, what skills, tools, and abilities that they need to develop so that they can be the CEO that I want them to be selfishly in 10, 20, 30 years to help the world? Oh, that's how I developed the mindful leadership framework mm. was kind of like looking out at the future of like, technology is not going to slow down. Our world is changing super fast, probably going to change, change faster. How can they be successful? So I developed self-awareness, awareness of others, the ability to focus on what's important, very fundamental internal games. And um, as I then started to extrapolate that over the next couple of years, I realized, oh my gosh, 
startup founders, when they have one, 10, 20, 100 employees, if we can support them in creating successful organizations as cultures that I want, it's way higher leverage than trying to trying to turn a company that has 100,000 employees, 10,000 employees. And so that's how I backed into this. Well, let's just get a, a coach for every founder. Like, let's just, you know, let's like back into the highest leverage point. And so that was how that emerged, kind of like unfolded as, I, you know, again, as I was speaking to more people and kind of, I generally have a high level systems view of the world and culture. Like I, I sit around and think about stuff like that. So that's how that one came. The The other mission number two is for every coach in the world to be world-class. When I was speaking that first impossible goal in a men's group, one of the guys, Robert Glover, who I love, he wrote um, uh, No More Mr. Nice Guy, really incredible dude. He he looked at me, he goes, well, what does it matter if every coach sucks? (laughs) And I was like, yeah, you're right, Robert. Got it. I and and then I also looked and I was already still supporting coaches. I was already still teaching in the dojo. And I went, oh, I'm already doing that. I'm already trying to make sure that every coach who at least comes through my door, who I interact with, understands what coaching is, understands the responsibilities of coaching, and is willing to commit to this thing in the way that I am, which is this is an infinite game and we're always going deeper. And so I just decided to name it. Like, cool, I'm I'm up to that. And then my third impossible goal is for every human in the world to have the skills and being of a coach. And I realized that that was sort of my, my life purpose. My higher why I say is I'm here to remind us all that we're God. And, you know, like the, the like developing and cultivating these skills and ways of being is a reminder of that. Like they're both sort of intertwined in a really fundamental way. And so the last one is simply a reminder for me of, I think why my soul is here in this life. Mm. interesting like um a couple of years ago and i i wonder if it's like echoes of it i'm not quite gonna get it i don't think that but i i did some work on purpose and what came from me just one day a little emerging through was uh the shared purpose of humanity is to create the kingdom of heaven on earth these words Mm. just came out and I just got a sense of like, it's. The, I think that's the same as that higher why that you just said. I, th- I think yeah. it's like they're kind of um, what, like, um, you know, one, I did, I studied maths, right? So they like one implies the other. They, you know, they're right. just equivalent, right? Essentially, yeah. on some level. Beautiful. And I love the, I hadn't got, it's interesting. I hadn't got that reading those goals, but when you say them, it is like they are a kind of, um, those three impossible goals, they kind of pointed each other. It's like, actually, if you take one away, the other two don't make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it's, it's lovely to hear that. And I like the idea of, yeah, that systems thinking. It's, it's, I just love to be around people who are able to do that because it's, you would get to these leverage points. Like, right. I could just, <clears throat> if I just see this thing that I want and then I look, where's the leverage? And then I end up, oh yeah, founders that would imagine that. Right. Imagine. Yeah. yeah high leverage there towards all those other towards the other well towards the third one for sure and, and the higher why yeah really beautiful and i'm going to do a slight you know because robert glover was part of that story it's good it, it works but one of my other things uh, to catch from before was was men's work and uh-huh. aaron who i met in one of, in fact aaron <laughs> i told this story when i started the podcast interview with toku my first awareness of toku was uh, aaron getting coached by rich uh, in the intensive in London 
Aaron came all the way to London for the intensive. And I was like, wow, those kind of people who were doing that. I was like, this is all. And then, of course, six months later, I was in Santa Monica. I was like, whoa, what is going on here? But yeah. um, there was something about, Aaron had something about, 99% sure it was Aaron, had something about, uh, there are some people in the room who I'm really intimidated by. And that was like part of what had come up from the the invitation or the question that Richard posed to everybody. And Aaron had put his hand up and they were doing something. And he was like, point to, Rich said, point to one. <laughs> and Aaron turned around and pointed and said, Toku. And that was, so that was the first time I was aware of Toku was like <laughs> Aaron being intimidated by him. But yeah, I, I love that. And in there is, um, you know, you mentioned men's work a couple of times and doing that work. There's, it, it's in your story. I've read about it, maybe in the book somewhere or in on a web page. And, you know, you mentioned John Wineland, who was, who was, mm. I, I did a couple of workshops with at those intensives and David Dada, who, mm. whose book had a massive impact on me. Um, so I'm curious for you what, yeah, what came out of, men's work for you and why why did it why is it important to you uh i the, like the first words were like it's everything yeah um in a couple in a couple of different ways one being with i i have a perspective that um men are deeply wounded in the world women too both both and differently and one of the core woundings of men is you're not enough and um it's not okay to feel what you feel and one of the most profoundly healing experiences of my life was for me to express what I was feeling and who I am in a group of men and to be received with love. And in person, in person, it, it increasingly, I, I um, uh, am thinking about the physiological nervous system shifts that happen in transformation. Like we're energetic beings. Um, our bodies have to change in order for us to transform. And I experienced men's work, especially in-person embodiment focused men's work as one of the most powerful ways to shift, to change my body and allow for me to be more fully expressed and more of myself by being able to express or share my shadows, the stuff I was most afraid of, my most deeply painful moments. Um, so a very specific example is that my, so my father, um, had suffered from bipolar disorder. He was an alcoholic. He abused drugs largely to simply cope. Um, he, my, he and my mom divorced when I was about three, he was in and out of my life, but struggling with his own life, um, until I was 12. And, uh, I discovered he was, he had lied to me and said he had no longer been drinking, but found out he was drinking again. So I told him I didn't want to see him again. So I, I separated from my dad and then he died when I was 16. And the last time I saw him, the first time I saw him in four years and the last time I saw him was in the ICU or in a hospital in a coma. Um, I tried a lot of wounding from that. And I remember being at a workshop with 40 plus men with John 
in Mount Shasta, um, being held by other men as I fully expressed all the anguish, anguish, anger, fear, sorrow, loss. Like, like I could not name the feelings. <laughs> There's so many. And to be witnessed and loved and encouraged. And then as I was just sobbing after to receive the touch of men and to receive the love. And um, it, it still brings it still brings emotions now. And um and that way I say it's everything because I can I can only receive love now in that way because I, I was able to go through that painful experience. My body can receive more love. My body can receive more of all, all kinds of stuff. But life is fundamentally better because I was allowed to let go of that and I wasn't um I wasn't closed down at all from others. Why for you is the fact that it was men meaningful in there? I, I want to catch it partly because I'm curious what your take on that is and partly because I know I, I could kind of give some version of my answer to that, but I, I, I know also that people find the idea of men's work kind of weird sometimes. And I think partly it's because because of that question like why does it matter that it's that yeah. it's only men there i grew up learning that men were dangerous the only emotions that i saw in men and this is a this is a very broad brush but like but we'll just we'll just run with it was anger and fear and generally fear coming out as anger uh love was um happened and was awkward and was almost never and, talked about, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, like, I, I don't know that I told, like my dad told me he loved me with his whole heart often. And he was super volatile. And I didn't really believe him because he wasn't in my life, right? And so like, I didn't actually, I learned to not receive that love. And so what happens is I, I, there is a particular energy frequency, which is men, just generally like the masculine energy force in the world, I learned to not trust. So my body, my nervous system took on a shape that says, don't trust that. Don't open to it. Don't receive anything from it. Look at, look for the other shoe to drop when it's going to become angry, you know, kind of like always test to make sure it's okay. Uh, I, you know, I, I played sports for 20 years and I was not the biggest athlete. And so I was also like mildly bullied, right? Like I was like I have all of these sort of archetypal frameworks that sh that say that human in that form you cannot trust on some level, and and I think the only way to rewrite it, or the most uh, effective way to rewrite it, is to have that form rewrite it, right? And so there are men in that group who remind me of guys I played baseball with, who remind me of my dad, who remind me of me, who remind me of my brother. And to receive this new type of energy from them, I think is a way to transform it. It's it's similar to like, you know, we we move through spider phobia by being mm. by being around spiders and learning that we're okay. We have to go through the thing in order to to be able to regulate in it. Yeah. So this is just something like uh, <clears throat> I haven't done very much men's work, but I did a just before COVID actually I did a retreat and. Um, you can feel it, can't you? Like, you can just feel like the thing that is different 
when the room is is just men and and in that particular way because it does happen in other places it happens like you say in the in the changing rooms it happens on a sports field it happens in the certain bars or pubs that are showing certain sports at certain times but it's yeah. it's either almost or completely men but it's quite a different thing to be i don't know explicit purpose and the containers that people can create it's very and, and yeah one, one of my reflections would be just i'm just remembering it really that like we don't have those we don't have those healthy men only spaces really they probably maybe they used to exist at certain ways at certain times in certain cultures but we don't really have them now unless we're lucky with with sports but mostly people aren't yeah most people aren't thinking about that yeah let's make let's make more of them yeah it sounds like you did with that with aaron that's like powerful yeah amazing work to have done and that was before I did any work with John. There was just sense in me of like, let's create this for men. I didn't, I, again, I couldn't name it, but I knew that it was important. Yeah. Um, yeah. The other aspect that's really important, uh, I think fundamental to like doing the work with John that David Data inspired, which is the fundamental sort of sacred masculine feminine energy work was it allowed me to feel into have language to understand the world way more way more um acutely and uh has fundamentally shifted my relationship with with Kristen my fiance and and all kinds of folks and like there's to your point like you we can feel when it's um only men or say not that we these words are gendered masculine energy versus feminine but we can feel the stillness of having a group of people committed to being in that stillness that masculine type energy that is often quite nourishing. And um, when it's a bit mixed, and I grew up really mostly having relationships with women. I had, I was in baseball. I mean, I played baseball, I was in sports, but my close relationships and often the workplaces I was in were women dominated. Yeah. And so, you know, I, through doing men's work, I got to, I had the opportunity to be able to feel the difference in environments. And now that I have that acute awareness of what's happening in an environment on a regular basis, like my whole life is, is different. I, I can be more me and I can receive people more fully. Yeah. 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 Being more me and receive more fully. Yeah. That resonates with me. And I was just thinking, speaking of one star reviews, if you want to see some great one star reviews, check out David Data's Amazon, Amazon page. Oh, I uh, bet. <laughs> uh, people will, um, some people, if they were to read, so the book that I read, which had, you know, similarly, I would say, transformative effect on my relationship with my wife to the one you're talking about for you um, is the way of the superior man. And if you if you want to see some some fantastic Amazon reviews, definitely check those out. Um, and yeah, you know, it is that that idea of men's work yeah, is for me like yeah, is, it did enable me to be more of myself because uh, you know, culturally, personally, I don't know this kind of fear of of that masculine energy or aversion to it life's quite different when you just allow that to exist or for me it's been quite different to allow that to exist in different ways it's nice to be kind of reminded really of that i'm not i haven't been in it in those ideas necessarily consciously for a little while but it's you know as we're talking about it it's hard to not remember the impact of playing with some of the things that you writes about in that book and then feeling how different it is yeah, for me, one of the ones was like just allowing my kind of masculine energy decisiveness 
to exist, just like practicing with it, you know, in pointless times, but just pra- like, and then the difference in feeling when I allowed that to happen versus my way of being before that, which had been, you know, classically p- kind of passive about, about decision-making in lots of places. I remember my friend Steve being like, what's happened to you? You've become like, we were like shopping him and his, his then fiance and me, I think we're shopping in a supermarket. He's like, what's happened to you? You've become decisive. Cause I was like practicing it. I was like, yeah. what do you think we should have for dinner? This, like, you know, what's, what is this? But it's like, that's meaningful. Mm-hmm. Mm. So I almost, yeah, it's like, it's interesting to kind of feel this conversation and, and move it in different ways and feel free to reject my moving of it, of course, at any moment. But I'm aware, like there's something about sounds like I'm curious about the time as CEO of Pylea because you kind of talked about it again, because I've been in your space a little bit uh, ahead of this call. I can't remember exactly what you've said in this call and what I've just been yeah. in your space getting. Yeah, You said there was some like, somewhere you said there was some healing that had to happen after it. So, oh, you said it in this call, right? You were in, in Hawaii and then the book yeah. arrived, right? Yeah. So how did you become, I think it was some, in something you wrote to me, you said that you'd... Um, you kind of wound up your coaching business, which was it sounds like in a really healthy place to take on that role of CEO at Pylea. And then we're in it for about a year and then came out and we're still in the kind of rebuilding after that. And the book is here and that kind mm-hmm. of thing. But so what was, how did that come about? And yeah, what, what was meaningful? I, I was introduced to Pylea uh, in late 2019 and then, in 2020, um, was increasingly active in sort of strategic communication, strategic talk. And at that point, it was just uh, uh, the co-founder, Kari Sillins, who's amazing, uh, super, super grateful to, you know, like be able to do business with her. Uh, and her sister, Lisa, were basically the two employees. And then there's a series of uh, coach contractors. And... It was at the point where by the end of 2020, where I was like, we're growing. We need some more folks on the team. Um, at that point, Kari was hesitant to take on the CEO role. Um, she uh, was a bit hesitant, I think, to to stand out. She likes to kind of work in the background. And I said, well, you and I are talking about this stuff. Like, I'm not hesitant. Would it, would it fit? And they said, yes. And so suddenly I was going to be CEO of this company and imagined it to be a 10 year um, sort of journey in, in service of all of my, the impossible goals that I list. Right. So very clear, we're working with founders, like check, easy check uh, to um, in Pylea, we're deeply committed to supporting coaches in their own growth and development when they're part of the network. So cool. I get to build that from the ground up, check two. And then, you know, that's just like the third is kind of a natural occurrence. And uh, we grew like crazy. We almost tripled in the year of 2021 when I was CEO, we grew the team. You know, I was number three to like um, five or six by the time I left. And um, it was insane. It was insane. I don't know if you, I mean, if, like anyone who's listening who has gone through two to three X growth in an, in an enterprise company over a year, like it's 
a lot. And we were making systems up as we went. We were doing all kinds of experiments. We had no idea what was going to work and it wasn't. We had really amazing months. We had really terrifying months. You know, just like all of the things happened. And um, also Kristen, my fiance, was working weekends at the time. And so the only time I would have any opportunity to see her was during the week. And um, so I would take Thursdays off. And that was basically my only day, my only day off for a year. So we were just, you know, there's so much to do. And by the end of the year, I was, uh, Bay, who was my coach at the time, called me a nubbin, nubbin of Matt, just like had worn myself down. And it was, it's, you know, really fascinating kind of place for me to look as I think about like systems and culture and environment was that we as an organization are really, com- uh, they still are, and I am as the human committed to these values of, you know, growing sustainably. Literally, the, ta- the the company's tagline is build without burnout. And we're a startup in the startup world. So like we're already swimming in water that says kill yourself in pursuit of growth. And so it's like this like really interesting tension about like how do we do the thing we know is important while also continuing to while pushing, while pushing the way we need to to kind of be on the on the forefront of growing a business and Sometimes we were successful, but by the end I was, I was cashed. And um, yeah, so I, I think I had one coaching client throughout the year. I turned down other folks and wound down any other coaching engagements. I led the dojo that year that was in March and April. Um, but after that, that was one of the reasons we decided to wind it down was I again, expected I was going to be full-time in Pylea and sort of by the end of the year, it became clear that, um, well, Kari needed to be CEO <laughs> to be super frank. She's yeah. CEO now, right? It was, it was like, Hey, we're two visionaries who are just like bumping heads on a regular basis. And we love each other and respect each other. And it's her thing, man. And, uh, I, I didn't, I didn't want to keep running into a person who I love and respect so much. And, so I made the really challenging decision to step away and uh, last year kind of figure out like, what does this mean for me and my business and how do I fit in Pylea still? And how do I fit in my, my relationship and what, what is life anyways? Uh, and then a book came and I wrote a book and I had, you know, so like, I, I look, I look back and I'm like, I don't know how this stuff is happening, but it's happening and I'm just doing <laughs> the best. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And hmm. And so just to zoom in on something that I'm just curious about, it's like, it's going to change yeah. the energy a little bit. So you, maybe, you, yeah, it does. No, it does continue. It's like, what did you, when you came out, the book came and then I, I think I understand from what you sent to me and the kind of questions that I sent ahead of the call is you are building up the coaching business again. Like, what did you just like how knowing everything you knew, because it's an interesting thing to do, right, to go to build a coaching business. So like how mm-hmm. like on a kind of back of envelope, I think you sent this to me so I could kind of probably got it written down. But what did your coaching practice, the coaching practice you wound up look like? Yeah, it, like roughly how many clients, what kind of, you know, mix of thickness, the dojo was there, maybe the men's group yeah. There's like a few different things in there. What did that look like? Yeah, it was, I, I, we, the dojo or the uh, men's group, uh, we sunsetted after 2019. So in 2020, I probably did 90 to a hundred thousand dollars in revenue. 
up to eight clients at a time. I would have, I would have loved to have more clients, but that's where I was. Um, and uh, always, I've always had it served a mix of coaches and then founders, leaders, et cetera, sort of folks. Um, so I went into 2020, I mean, like looking at 2021, I was like, cool. My coaching business is going to grow. We're going to do the dojo again. We're going to, we're going to grow that. It's going to be great. Then see if there's more stuff. I'm going to probably lead some groups like 2021 is like, even without Pylea, like, this is going to be by far the, the best year of my coaching business. And then I, you know, took on what I, I planned to be a 10 year adventure. And, um, yeah, I, I exited that with like, oh, First of all, I can handle so much more stress in my coaching conversations. I was having conversations with people and feeling like, oh, this thing right here that they're feeling or that we're talking about would have like, I would have been really insecure, kind of like not knowing what to do. And I'm just kind of like watching myself be entirely okay. Um, so that was fun. Yeah. That was fun. I, I up-leveled. And the, the side effect of that was that I had folks quit on me in 2021, uh, last year, 2022 earlier. I, I didn't ever have a, actually, I'd never had a coaching client quit until I think 2021, early 2021. And so last year I, they're like three or four folks who quit. And, uh, I was like, what the heck is happening? Like, who am I, who am I being as a coach? What's going on? And part of it that I saw is I had shifted who I was as a coach and I was still enrolling folks who were folks I'd worked with before. Mm. And uh, so I was inviting them to play a different game, but not explicitly. And so I had to start to make a decision of like, you know, if I want to work with these folks, then I have to play different as a coach, or I can start to look at different folks who are more willing to be, you know, in, in deeper spiritual conversations in like my, like, my ability to hold them in intense pressure that, you know, would have been challenging for me before, but, you know, I'm going to confront them more basically is, is how it is. Um, so am I, you know, am I courageous enough to enroll those types of people who are now scary for me to enroll? Right. Cause it was a little bit playing safe. Um, so I, I got to be confronted with that last year. And I, you know, I, last year I made a third of the income that I made in 2021 and in many ways thought I was going to have an even better year than I had the year before, but like it was sort of like two steps forward, one step back, or sometimes three steps back is, you know, at least revenue wise. Yeah. And um, just like, I don't know, like really curious practical term, how do you contractually financially handle you personally? Cause I know how I do this these days, but like mm. when somebody wants to stop, like what happens in the, what are the agreements you have about that? Yeah. Um, generally folks pay month to month. They pay at the beginning of the month. I I uh, I don't have a fancy legal agreement. It's a it's a it's an agreement that I that I like has clear agreements about this is this is what we're up to, and it doesn't say any. I mean, it, it says like you're agreeing to this amount of time together. If someone wants to quit, I will invite them to conversations to really look at their commitment, to look at how you know the impact of it, uh, and if they want to quit, I'm, I don't really. I don't, I don't offer any legal record. You know, there's like nothing. It's like, cool. Got it. Let's talk again. And so, you know, I'm, I'm less likely to say yes to you in the future. Hmm. Like, just like, I'm very clear. I'm like, look, this is the impact. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. That's strong, isn't it? 
Well, I guess if 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 that's true, then you say if that, it's presumably. true. If it's true, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like yeah I, I, right. Sorry, I just caught. I was like, there's a what you know, a client flashed before my eyes that I wish I'd said that to the first time because it would have made. Because actually, we did. I had a client where that who quit on me twice in separate in, engagements, and it meant that like I know inside that that you yeah okay, Matt's thank thank you, Matt. Matt's nodding and saying same <laughs> um, yeah. because like I wish like after the second one, I, I managed to say it to them you know, in some way, as I worked it out, really, I don't think I knew it. Because on yeah. some level, I thought this person was really amazing, absolutely had that feeling of that you talked about with the first client of being kind of in love of like this really wonderful person. They were kind of perfect client. And yet, you know, we have to have those. you know, well, my view would be, you've got to have those boundaries that are solid and grounded and centered so that actually, it's not okay to keep saying to somebody, I'm here to do, I can't remember what it was with this client, six months of work and then stopping after three months. It's not okay to do that, actually, yeah. for me. Um, but quite a powerful thing to, like a, an act of service, I think, actually, to, for you to be saying that to the clients because probably no one else says it to them, to be honest. Um, I, right. I, I, I know it's a pattern, right? Because we've we, I know them because I know what we're working on. I'm like, you're, you're <laughs> yeah. doing the thing again, right? And you can't see it maybe right now. And it's okay. And I love you. And and you're doing it. And what I um wh- where I get to really look on my side is, did I do more work in enrollment than they did? Mm. Right? Did I, did I really try to move them across the finish line? Because that's an indication of like, oh, yes, yeah, something wasn't right. And I ignored it before we started. Um, was I really holding onto their vision for them? Was I, you know, like, so, so there's tremendous learning in, in those kind of to look at like, where, where did I have a hunch that they might quit that I didn't listen to, or we didn't bring to the surface, uh, earlier. And maybe this takes us to like, into the book. We've talked about the origin of the book a bit, but one of the really nice bits that I came across in the book was you're going to have to give me the, you're going to have to catch the language that I get slightly wrong, but it's something like, you know, thinking about the clients, I guess, at that enrollment stage about what they want and maybe what they need, but also and amongst what their breakthroughs might be. And then really, like, I think one of the things that I've never, I don't think I've ever heard anybody say explicitly in the way that you do in that book before. So maybe it's, I don't know if it's original, but it's original to me, um, yeah. <laughs> was like, what's the thing for me here as the coach? What's the breakthrough that might be being asked of me in this, in this work? And feel free to correct the the um the, the the kind of language there and i guess i'm i'm curious a little bit to hear why that matters and how i guess one of the things that as i discussed that i discussed that with a client today actually because i could really see mm. how it was playing out for he was this is a coach I could see how it was playing out for him with a prospective client and so you know here's your book doing work when you don't know that it's doing it so it's nice to be able to tell that it's like we held that idea together and looked at it and um and you know, it's like, it's quite a, it's an interesting thing to hold that idea of the breakthrough. How is this work for us as well as for the client? And I guess I, yeah, I'm curious if you could say something about just about that yeah. whole thing. It's not really a question. The, the origin was when I was working with Bay and she was my coach. I celebrated. I was like, I signed a client. She was like, cool. Awesome. What are they going to, what are they helping you to create? And I was like, ah, F you Bay, right? Like you're immediately turning the mirror around. So I love it. Love you as a coach. Yeah. Um, so, so she, she offered that. And then, um, I think on the next call, I, I turned it into this, like the four question, their wants, their need, those their wants are what they bring. 
as verbatim as I can. I'm just going to, this is what they say they want at coaching. Their needs are what I suspect is kind of a deeper underlying thing that would serve them. Their breakthrough again is a guess. What high level this, that's, you know, we're talking about like, what's the thing we were talking about earlier, kind of like if this shifts, what else? And then what's my breakthrough. Um, so I, I got it from Bay and then sort of, uh, you know, systematized it in my, in my practice. And what's so important for me in it is it, um, it helps me to predict where I'm going to get caught or hooked, as I say in the book with this client, because if we're doing good work, it's going to happen. And, um, and just, just say, what do you mean by hooked? Yeah. Hooked is generally if, um, when I want something to be other than it is. So if I'm annoyed with the person, I'm hooked by the current situation. Or if, uh, you know, if I want life to be different, I'm currently hooked. And, and the way that shows up for me as a coach is, you know, if I think my client's being annoying, I am hooked. Or if I think that their goal is impossible, is actually impossible, then I, you know, there's a place for me to look at like, how am I limiting myself or limiting the world or limiting them? Like, where am I not being clean as a coach? And that's a place that I can look for a potential breakthrough for me. And um, why I think it's important is that I think it's important that fundamentally that we as coaches continue to be looking at our own growth opportunities if we're doing good work. And it's just kind of like, I think is the nature of the beast. And um, I find that the more that I, or we do it explicitly, whether or not we're right, if we do it explicitly or put it into practice, the better we get at it and the more kind of good stuff can happen. It also alerts me to, again, like, this is what I can look out for as a coach or get ready to bring to my coach to be supported as I'm supporting this person. Yeah, it's cool. I just caught that. I don't know if you're doing this deliberately. I guess you've worked with Toku. So I know he talks a lot about deliberate practice, those kind of things. But that's one of the things when I remember reading about one of those deliberate practice researchers, it's like one of the ways to improve your capacity in anything really, but but your intuitions is to uh, like make a guess and then compare it with reality essentially so it's like it would be to watch what if you were doing this as coaching the way that i've thought about doing it before is you watch someone else's coaching session something happens you pause you think what would i do mm-hmm. and maybe you'd have a few ideas of that and then you watch what they do and you watch what happened and then you go back to what you thought you would do and reflect on it and that's a way of training yourself and i'm just getting the or that this practice that you've designed is probably also why you're catching those things earlier right because you're training yourself each time you do it to okay i well if you look back at that at the end of the coaching program then you're really training yourself it's like oh i thought it was going to be this and i was kind of right but actually there was this whole thing i missed um as well as like you said the advantage of yeah being ready to get the coaching the supervision the 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 it's like by naming i really get it by naming what your breakthrough might be you just make it much less likely that 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 the reason you need that breakthrough gets in the way of the other person it, it it's like also a practice of it's okay for me to be human uh-huh. in this right like 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 uh if i am um intentional at the beginning of saying i'm gonna get hooked then when it happens i can add so much less significance to it i can it's not a big deal and uh you know at least that's important for me as as a coach and as a human like the more i can increasingly i'm saying it normalizing human experiences just like, just accept that this thing is going to happen. We we don't create it by that, but just like say it's okay if it does, then it's, 
it's way easier to kind of work through. Very similarly, one of the things I do now with new clients is um, before we go fully to yes or before our first onboarding call, I have them write, how are all the ways you, what are all the ways you're going to uh, try to screw this up? How are you going to get in your own way in our work together? What, how are you going to try to quit? What's going to show up? If I have clients who are in a new relationship, I have them write, like, how are all of your survival mechanisms going to try to screw up this relationship? Let's just get them on paper. And then when they show up, we can celebrate because it means we're on track. Yeah. I'm going to steal that one straight away. That's going in my, Do it. In my, yeah. in my intake. It's, it's really good. It's really good. Um, Matt, this is, oh, wait. Yeah, let's do. A big part of the book is the G, is a GPS analogy. Mm. My favorite bit of the GPS analogy that I've come across, like I said, I haven't read, the, I haven't read all of the book, is yeah. this beautiful story you tell about being in Madrid uh-huh. and the difference about how you know Madrid compared to how you know even where you live now. Yeah. And I just think it's such a good, um, I'm going to, maybe I, uh, you can tell it, but I just yeah. think for me, it, it gets to one of the, that bit is what, you know, as analogies or metaphors often are, it gets to one of the most fundamental reasons why I believe in coaching as opposed mm-hmm. to many other ways of helping people. So I just wonder if you could just give us a little bit of that, that story. Yeah. They, um, happy to. And then I want to hear how, how you are kind of related yeah, yeah. to it. Cause I want, yeah. I want to learn that. So I, when I was in college, I studied in Madrid for six months and this was in 2005. So the phone that I had at the time was a prepaid, a uh, little brick kind of phone that could send text messages and like call. And that was it. I think it had snake as the game, you know, yeah. that, that kind of, and um, so what that means is that I didn't have Google maps to help me identify or get around the city. I had, I had paper maps. I had the maps that were around the city and in the subway. And otherwise I just learned the city. And um, I realize now that I have Google maps you know, I live in, in Denver that I know Denver, even my own neighborhood, sometimes around here way less. I don't know street names. I can sort of feel stuff, but generally I follow, I GPS everywhere I go. Um, even if it's pretty close just to see traffic. Like I kind of use that as like, I just want to know if there's any crazy traffic. And the side effect is that um, a couple of years ago, I went back to Madrid and we were able to navigate to a, a bar we used to go to all the time. And I, yeah, I, I definitely made wrong turn quote wrong terms. It was a, it was a, a longer route than it needed to be, but I could get there. And it's simply because like my body has internalized a knowledge of the city. It's still here. Even after uh, it's like 15, 18, years, however many, lots of years, I'm, I'm feeling old now. <laughs> and it's similarly um, yesterday, I just got back from Nashville, which is where I lived um, a few, a few stops ago. And a similar thing where like, I know I can get anywhere in the city now. It was highly inefficient routes, but I knew that I could get anywhere. And it was just like, um, I am acutely aware of how much I now, and I suspect we outsource our direction-making capability and even our decision-making capability to external things. In this case, it's Google Maps. And in the book, I talk about just generally society, about how we allow others to decide our directions for us. Yeah, it's great. And uh, I'm aware it's partly, partly I think it's great because I've had similar thoughts myself before. So it's it's uh, validating yeah. for that. But, you know, and, um, part, you know, well, my example, so I, we recently moved to 
um, the West Midlands near Birmingham in in, in England, and um, partly to be near my um, wife's parents. And my wife's dad knows ev- he always loves to talk about um, road names and like the, the I don't know I can't remember how it works in the US. I think no, you have like numbered highways and things, don't you? Like it's the mm-hmm. same here. All those like the B whatever we have A roads and B roads and, and motorways that kind of thing, which are highways. And uh, he'll like, oh, did you come along this this road and that road? And I'm like, uh-huh. I don't know. Like, I never know uh-huh. the answer to that because you're bonding with your father-in-law. It's like, uh, yeah, or no, depending on you know, with that, that about that level of certainty. And he knows the country differently to me, but mm-hmm. I'm really aware that, and I don't think this is necessarily a bad thing with travel, right? Because one of the things that the technology allows us to do is remove the weight from our our functioning of needing to know how to get anywhere. Um, and the metaphor, and and there is a knowing of a place that's that's really wonderful. And I'm enjoying now. I'm here. To be honest, I couldn't have mm. before we moved here. I couldn't have pointed to even which direction which town is, even the ones of which have stations I've been picked up and dropped off from many times. And it is a different yeah. thing now to be living here to be able to know which town is that way and which one is that way and which way is north and those things. Which amazingly, despite coming here for getting on ten years before we moved last year, I, I couldn't do. And the reason I think that it lands so much with, for me, with coaching is, is just because it it speaks to that in a way. Like, well, it's like is it a developmental shift? I don't know. It's like when I ran some. So I had a really fun time. God, is it only last year ago? Maybe two years. Maybe twenty one into twenty two. I think running some coaching training for a consultancy who wanted to train some coaches and mm. through a series of unfortunate event, fortunate events, me and my friend Mike ended up doing it. And we had a wonderful time really co-create re- recreating the training course that we'd both studied. And one of the one of the moves that in some ways, the, the reason I wish I'd had that metaphor is because one of the moves that I think is hard early on for some people as they're coming to coaching is understanding why it's better to ask the question than give the answer to the person you're trying to help. And if I'd had that metaphor when I was teaching these people, like, I think they got it, but I think that would have brought that home much more, um, in a much more grounded and full way. I think the the reason that metaphors or poetry works is because it gets a complex concept better than prose. That's, I don't think that's an original thought, but that's like what I love about it. It's like they'd have just kind of sunk into that because they could understand what it'd be like to have your Madrid-level knowledge of themselves versus your Denver-level knowledge of themselves, right? You can feel why that would be, why the Madrid-level knowledge would be preferable. And I I think, I can't remember if you named it in the story now or if I read it in the book, that the time in Madrid was short, right, compared to the time that you might have lived in in Denver or some of the other places that you've lived. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily take that long to get that kind of thing. Yeah, it was six months compared to, you know, years in some of these other places. And this is, I think, related to um, both we talked about about being in this practice as a coach of identifying our own breakthrough, identifying or at least guessing what our clients might need. All of this to me is uh, it's it's a practice of, of learning to look inward and trust ourselves for ourselves as a coach. And then for our clients, I think coaching fundamentally is getting in lots and lots of reps of what do I want? Where am I now? And then how do I move? And it's like that simple over and over again, but it brings up so much for us. Yeah. Just to catch it. Sorry, Matt, to do this, but yeah. for people who don't yeah. want to read the book, 
Matt's just really nicely summarized that those are the kind of key, that's the key move, right? What is it like? What do I want? Where am, where am I now? And, and, and how do I move? Yeah. Yeah. And, like, and what's in between, right? And, 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 and then if you, what you, what you get in the book, which is great just to make people actually want to buy it is you get like you. to double click on all of that, right. In, mm-hmm. in, in textured ways. So, um, yeah, yeah, it is, it is that. And, and I guess in the, I, I caught like that, I think we, maybe in that, this is a new thing that I had when you were talking just then, like, um, in that metaphor is, um, something like the Madrid level knowledge is more integrated so that the the GPS for me, sometimes what we're outsourcing, like what we want to is our, for me, the, the struggle is I'm outsourcing it to my, not to the world necessarily, but to my thinking self, mm. which is not able to know the things that a more integrated version of me is able to know. And that's kind of, you know, probably always and forever my work. Um, I hope so. I hope so. And that's why I think it's so worth asking the question personally. People ask me like, how do I know if it's my ego versus my desire? I'm like, I don't think you know until you try it. Like, I don't, I, I don't think it's an intellectual exercise to try to distinguish between this. I think we get to move and experiment and be in the muck of it and, and then, and then find out and then hope, you know, get better next time. Practice again. Yeah. Yeah. Lovely. No, we, we kind of, I'm aware we're coming vaguely towards the end of the time now. Um, yeah. Like, I feel like there's a kind of, what do you, I mean, we've talked about it in the concept of the big goals the, with the book. We've talk, we talked about it in the concept of those big goals. I can, we, like anyone listening can kind of feel from you those impossible goals and how the book, even in just the brief ways we've touched on it, contributes to that. Um, obviously, particularly that that second goal. But what what's important about the book and what it does in the world to you? And then maybe if it works to segue from there into how you birthed it into the world through the publishing process, which we kind of name check before, and I don't I don't want to miss out on. Yeah. Um. So first, this book is the uh, book that I wish I had had when I before I got into the dojo when I was an, an early coach. And, um, like, not a how-to book on coaching, because I don't think that's what coaching is, but how do I know if I'm directionally on target? How do I know if, if I'm starting to do the thing? And what does it actually mean for me to be as a, to be a coach? So that's what I try to answer. I mean, my hope is that every coach in the world will read this, right? Like, I think everyone can gain some sort of perspective from this thing. Um, and then secondly, it's the book that I will return to over and over again as a coach, because again, like I'm coming from the context that this work never ends. There's always a place for me to look. And there's always something I'm not looking at that I could, that I could go deeper in. And I I've read the book nine times already by now, including the last time was me recording the audiobook, which hopefully will, it should be out by the time this, this um, episode comes out. And there was a moment like a week or two before the, the launch date, when I was reading and I just looked at Kristen and I was like, oh my gosh, like this is good. If I just applied this, I would feel better right now. And she's like, yeah, your launch would go a lot easier if you listen to that guy. He's smart, right? Like that's, and um, it's so humbling for me as a human and as a coach and as someone who thinks he's has answers sometimes to like read the thing that came out of my brain and then be like, oh, I completely forgot that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's lovely. And then, yeah, tell me about, I want to pick your brains on audiobooks because that's like my vague, if I had a goal for this year, it might be to get around to doing cool. that. But um, but tell me like publishing, you said that the process of of writing the book was quite through me, but the publishers was, it was kind of happened through you, but the publishing yeah. felt quite, felt difficult. I think you said earlier in this conversation. Yeah. So what was, what happened during the publishing process and what decisions did you make and what, what did you learn? So I, ch I chose to go with a, a marketing team. They mostly do a lot of personal branding, but I've launched a number of books um, and then um, sort of consultant editors to help out instead of going with a hybrid publishing or, or even trying to pitch to a publisher. And um, I, I realized at some point in the process, a few things, one, my marketing team and I had different ideas about what different phases of the process meant. So the advanced copies for me, I wanted to get feedback during those. For them, they meant they were like basically finished books just to get reviews and endorsements. And so um, we kept running up against differences in timelines. And um, I got to distinguish that I, I hired them so that I could lead the process when I really needed to manage more of the process. If, if folks are just familiar with the distinction of leadership versus management, I had to manage a lot more of the process than I imagined I would. And that is draining for me. It's, it's really actually something I try to step out of. And I can often put leadership on a pedestal. And so it's sort of like, oh, I don't want to do this. I was resisting. So there was like that whole thing. There was, you know, I, I'm afraid. I really appreciate you giving, you know, Jeff a shout out, a positive shout out. I had another friend who runs a podcast who did not like Jeff's outreach. And I got to receive that. And I got some friends who sent feedback of, hey, the direct messages that I'm receiving from your team to invite me to your group, they sound like spam. And so I got to the stuff that I'm mostly worried about, which is that the people in my life will not, tr will no longer trust me. I'll be alone and they they'll hate me. I got to be confronted with that on a, on a consistent basis. Um, and I got to ask for help from people that I didn't expect to, or haven't talked to in a number of years. And so it was a fundamental identity shift that sort of sideswiped me because the writing was pretty painless. And so I was like, the publishing should be painless. All of the consultants and book launch people I talk to, everyone makes a huge deal out of sitting down and writing. And so since there is very little attention kind of placed on the other side, I thought there would be not much to it, but like that was the opposite. And then, so I also did a lot like what's wrong with me. It shouldn't be this hard. I didn't anticipate this. So all of that. And then meanwhile, I'm putting some like you so much energy and attention into the book launch that my business is not going well, going well, according to how I imagined it should I had imposter syndrome. Who's going to trust a book by a guy whose business isn't going well. Right. Like yeah, it, was, yeah, yeah. it was like all of that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, isn't it, isn't it interesting? There's so much. I mean, it is like, I think it is a, it is like a, it is a very courageous thing to create this book that you've created for that Thank last you. that last reason that you said right it takes to let i guess what i catch is the person who admires courage and creativity that's who as part a big part of who i am i'm mm -hmm. really aware that like you had to let it come through you then you had to not get lost in who am i to write a book called this is coaching when you like you do have a lot of coaching success compared to a lot of coaches 
But, yeah. you know, by most people's definitions of coaching success, there are more people with more success than you. And yet you're the one writing this book, right? So it's like you, you yeah. got through that. <laughs> then you got through the kind of mess of the of the publishing and all the stuff it it, it can bring up. And the book is out. And that is out. so, yeah. you know, well Thank done. <laughs> Thanks for seeing all of that and acknowledging it. Yeah. And I, one of the things I learned, I guess, from doing the four was the next one is much easier to publish mm. so the publishing process for the second one was obviously the third, like but it i didn't expect that to be that much. i didn't i had the same thing i didn't expect it to be as hard with the first one but i also didn't expect yeah. it to get as much easier nice. with the second just from knowing just from all for me it was a lot right. about like every decision required learning a whole new aspect of publishing which i didn't know about um and yeah. that was painful and then mostly for future ones you just do the same thing that you did last time uh, and yeah. that's okay. Um, and yeah, just to catch it for people, because I think we said this before we switched on. I The funny thing about this is, about how this interview came to happen is it really happened because Toku, uh, Toku and I are speaking again for a, a return to the, him coming back on the show. And he recommended you as part of that exchange of emails as a, a guest. He recommended Matt. And I was like, I know Matt's name and I've heard of Pylea before. What is that? And then I went back yeah. through my emails and I found emails from one of Matt's team, Jeff, um, doing yeah. what I thought. Yeah, I genuinely meant that. I thought were like it. Well, obviously it was enough. It was a relevant enough to me and b uh, well enough written email that I had been on your website and looked up Pylea. And I, I'm pretty sure added you to my spreadsheet with potential guests for the future before Toku's cool. nudge. You know, you have to need a second second nudge to uh, make something actually actually happen. So yeah. yeah, I think at least and yeah, no, like. The endorsements, the reviews, like that team has obviously also done done some work on that, which is great. And I'm glad there's an audio book coming because I think hearing that book and the way it's written in your voice, I, I imagine that'll be an impactful thing for, for people. Thank too. you. Um, Thank you. Yeah. So, hmm. Matt, I, I loved you, you sent through... Um, uh, uh, regular listeners will have heard me say this before, but it's it's because I like it. I, one of the th questions I ask is for basically for talking points from you. Uh, and um, you said that some of them came from Kristen. And I always yeah. love it when, so the, the question I ask to guests for people who are listening and who haven't heard me say this before is, what would, I can't remember, like, what would a close friend or someone who knows your journey really well tell me to ask you about? And I love it when people actually get someone to answer some of them. So I think like half of the ones you sent were from her, or you'd, you'd said yeah. from, was from her. So thank yeah. you, Kristen, because they were, they're such beautiful ones and it maybe because you said that but it felt like it, you could just feel that they were questions from somebody else mm -hmm. and i really like, yeah, they were not like, what i would have put exactly, in there but I could, you could feel the kind of you could feel that that bit of her that you mentioned before where she says yeah you should probably listen to this guy who wrote this book <laughs> you know it felt that in them as well mm. and there are two that i want to make sure i ask um the first is I think it speaks to so much of what we spoke about how do you maintain passion for this work in a culture that doesn't really understand it like it's just such a beautiful question that I think speaks to the experience of lots of coaches who struggle to do that. And that sometimes that's definitely been me. I think mostly I, I, mostly I can do that, but yeah. What's your, like, what comes up with that question? How do you do that? A, a few things. One, I think this is partly coming because we were in Nashville and I mentioned we, I was seeing an old friend and I was expressing like, Hey, it's hard for me to feel in belonging often often in Michigan where we grew up and some other places And Denver is a place where I feel like I've really found that. And I felt difficult at first to get him to receive that. 
And I was like, you're doing exactly the thing. And there's sort of like this, like a little emotional tension moment where I was like, I don't want your advice. I want you to hear me. Um, and so I think part of that, like Kristen noticed it. She's seen that we go to parties and people ask me and I, what I do. And I say, I'm a coach and like, that's nice. And then they like move on. And, and I just so deeply desire people to like, ask like, what is that about? Like to like lean in just a half a second, but I really get that it can be frightening for them, that they don't want to look stupid, that they want to, you know, like it can be confronting, like just generally my being can be a bit confronting. So that's a bit of what the context of what Kristen was sharing. So one, uh, you know, now, especially that I live here in Denver and, and I, sp- I spoke to finding my people in the dojo is to spend more and more time with people who get it. And not all of my time. I also intentionally, I'm not the guy who only hangs out in coaching circles. That would also be terrible for me over, too much. Um, I need to go hang out with my buddies who talk about fantasy football and, you know, all that other, all that other stuff. Um, but part of it is like knowing what feeds me, like increasingly getting an idea of like, yeah, being around these people really feed me and they need deep conversations outside of coaching conversations so that I can feel like other people actually want this too. And then the second thing is it's sort of like golf, which is like we hit a hundred shots for like the two good shots in the whole round. And so um, when my clients come to me and they're like, oh my gosh, I see it. They like have an insight or have cha- made a change completely outside of our coaching conversation uh, for a thing that we've been talking about for two years or whatever, however long, you know, like I go, this is the best. Like, why would I do anything other than this? Oh my gosh. Like this is the most fulfilling thing I could ever imagine. Um, and that, you know, obviously that can't happen in every conversation, but when it does, it's, it's enough for a while. Yeah. Yeah. The other, I mean, you kind of, in a way you've kind of touched on, I think probably what's behind this. The other one that I liked was what your feeling is for where coaches find um, community and other coaches. And I know that that's a part of the work that I do. And I know that it's important. I hear it from them. What's your feeling about that? Or what what do you say to that one? This is another. We so need it in the, in the same way that the, there's like the, the trait saying of like, put your own oxygen mask on first. Like, man, if you're going to support someone in a community, you better damn well go find your own community. Cause like, that's the way to actually be able to transmit that energy. Um, and, 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 you know, one of the, I'll, I'll share a couple of my own breakthroughs. One has been as, as I've had to, as I've like chosen to worry less about what people think of me or worry that I'm not enough, I can accept them where they are more, which is not just coaching clients, but like, anyone who's who's a coach i can be quite judgy just like you're not a good enough coach i don't trust you you know like i kind of spoken to that a few times like it's definitely one of my so so part of it is like just choosing to love choosing to just be like i'm i'm here and this is a community and it's not perfect and i'm just gonna freaking love you like i'm i'm just gonna feel welcome and choose to see that you love me and like choose or receive that and so learning through that has been really helpful and then secondly like um, showing up in places I might be a little bit afraid to show up where like, if I'm intimidated, by, if it's the reverse where I'm intimidated by people to like show up and choose to belong. And, um, and that is not necessarily always in coaching communities or sometimes it is with coaches I might be intimidated by. Yeah. Lovely. And I, um, the chapter in one of my books, which I say, which I'm fortunately like is a story my brother told me once. And I can't remember, we, neither of us could remember where, who said this, like neither of us mm-hmm. came up with this framework, but this idea that we actually need three types of community on our journey we actually need some people who are kind of speech marks behind us 
Uh-huh. And we need some people who are speech marks ahead of us. And we need some people that are alongside us. And I think you kind of yeah. have touched on all three of those in, yeah. in this conversation. Um, and if any listeners, I always say this whenever I talk about that story, if any listeners know where that framework comes from, who said it, would love to know. <laughs> um, Matt, we've talked like we've talked a lot about the kind of breadth of your work and the different ways you've you've created things. We've touched on a, a bunch of them from the the one to one work to the to the TEDx talk to now the book. One of the um, it's a really nice question from one of the members of the coaches journey community. Some of them can ask questions, and mm-hmm. he said, um, "How do you think about the interplay between that deeper work and the lighter touch work?" and um, do you how do you personally value those those different types of of things you do and how do they satisfy you in in either does some satisfy more or do they just satisfy different ways how do you think about about all the different types of work that you've done from tedx talk to the book to the deep one-to-one work i guess the group work time at pilea yeah, I really love this. I've been thinking about it a lot, especially the chat GBT coming and people are talking about are is AI gonna replace coaches? Um, so I can sometimes tend to the like deeper is better. So I Toku and I are are bros. <laughs> yeah. And uh and you know, this I think this book was the first, it was sort of a coming out of like my soul being like, dude, you gotta share a thing that isn't only like deep one-on-one time with you. And so I think it's extremely valuable and increasingly I'm seeing like asking, how can I meet people exactly where they are and allow wherever they are to be okay. And to not try to force them again, like looking where I'm doing the heavy, heavy lifting and enrollment, not force them into this kind of deep thing with me one-on-one. And so um, on the, on the backside of the book, I, I am still in the process of creating systems for this, not exactly where I want to be about sharing more content on social media, sharing more content on, just uh, broadly online, some more thought leadership sort of stuff as a way to, to kind of give those bites to people. I think they're so important, right? Like this is, it's easy to, to, um, to like dismiss Instagram quotes and like, if they serve a purpose, they serve a purpose, right? Also look at, are you stuck there? But like acknowledge if they're serving a purpose, right? And let that actually be and celebrate that win. So, so that, and then, um, in the next year or two, would love to have a Matt chat bot an AI bot that is based on this is coaching. And this is another reason I want to create more stuff so that people can, can kind of meet me and have part of that. It, it won't be called coaching, but it's like, it's learning. And it's, to me, it's more teaching than it is coaching, right? It's, it's that like facilitative. This is some knowledge I have, and I want to share that with you. So I definitely want to bring that to the world and then hopefully invite people into deeper conversations, right? And to say like, cool, my time is limited. I want to have up to 10 clients. I really want to be able to have focus work on my creative stuff. So that's got to limit my client time. And um, I want to keep experimenting. So how do I keep doing cool, deep stuff in the midst of that? Yeah. Beautiful, great answer, Matt. It's so so useful. I'm aware I said we were kind of coming to the end of our time quite a while ago now. We actually are. <laughs> um, is there anything before we wrap up? Is there anything that we haven't talked about that it that that it feels important to say or or share in this moment? I'll just like piggyback on the other things that I'm experimenting with now that the book is yeah, is yeah. Out. What's, yeah, what's coming up? Because this is there's actually a practice for me in this of I'm really good at like the TEDx talk 
shipping a piece of art and then be like, what's the next thing? Cause I'm already interested in something else. And I'm trying that you probably know this, you know, you're thinking about this with your books. Like how do I stick with this piece of work for a while and really honor it? So I'm developing a group coaching pilot program for coaches to take the, the lessons of the book deeper. It'll be called mastering the coaching game. Really excited about that. Um, and the first group program that I like format that I've developed on my, on my own. I've, so like, you know, the first thing that I like just me, which is really fun. And then secondly, as part of this experimentation and higher leverage, deep work, um, for the last year and a half, I've been calling in something called the Magnum Opus project, which is uh, a program designed for someone who is financially doesn't need anything. They've, they've probably have li- had a liquidity exit. They're set. They don't need to work, but their soul needs to create their, what I call their masterpiece. And the idea is the the curiosity is if we could, if we had tons of resources, tons of commitment and could create what I call the ideal support party to help someone shift into the thing they're here to do, what could we do? (laughs) And so it's a really interesting, like a curious kind of look into this, like super deep, super intense, high touch work that has not happened yet, but I'm excited to kind of bring. And I love that you're, you can feel it. I can feel it. And you, you, you know, you're making it more real by, by speaking about it now. So yeah. that's super cool. Yeah. Matt, we could feel like we could do this for hours. And I was saying to you before we switched on that, um, there's a weird time in my life right now and I'm, my energy is quite depleted and yet, you know, a couple of hours in your presence and I'm feeling really, really beautiful. So thank, thank you for you. that. Cause it means I'm going to go and get to do bedtime with, with, with Leah, my daughter now and feel, and she's not very well. So I'll get to go in instead of mm. often as I am the end of a day of work feeling drained I'm going to get to go in feeling really alive so that that's more of your work rippling on to uh little red-headed toddlers in uh Warwickshire <laughs> um, <laughs> it's been a yeah it's been a real pleasure Matt thanks so much for this um, from me and, and and from the listeners thanks Robin hello Robbie here again a couple of quick things before you go on to whatever else you've got going on in the rest of your day. Uh, and that is, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then you might be interested in becoming a supporter of the Coach's Journey podcast or joining the Coach's Journey community. Both of those are ways to support the show, help it continue, help it reach more and more people, but they also give you other things that you might be interested in. If you become a supporter, which is paying a small amount of money every month, then you'll get advanced notice of guests, perhaps the chance to ask questions of guests, um, depending on what membership level you have, and and more monthly video updates from me, all kinds of other bits and pieces. And if you join the Coach's Journey community, then you get all of that, plus you get to be part of a group coaching program led by me um, and attend group coaching calls up to 10 times a year, have one-on-one coaching with me, and be part of a community of coaches who want to create thriving coaching businesses and thrive as people while they do it. And um, one of the members said recently that the word that keeps coming up in the members WhatsApp group is beautiful to describe those calls. And so um, I'd love to have you there on one of those calls. Um, and as a member of the community or a supporter of the show, it would mean the world to me and it helped me to keep doing this thing that I love to do and that many, many people have told me is really helpful for them. So thanks very much for listening and hope to have you back with us on the Coach's Journey podcast sometime soon. Thank you.